You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Happy New Year, Will. Happy New Year, David. And Happy New Year to all of you out there. Welcome to episode 155 of the Common Descent Podcast. This is a special episode for several reasons. Number one, it is the last episode of 2022. Mm -hmm. We are wrapping it up. Next up, we'll be in a whole new year. Also, it ends in a five, which these days means it's a plants episode with Allie. Yeah! We will be joined after the news by our good friend Allie Baumgartner, Dr. Allie Baumgartner, doctor of fossil plants and such, (laughs) to talk to us about fossil plants. And also, this episode just so happens to come out on Christmas. Merry Christmas! (laughs) That is the release of this episode. Now, when we realized that... A few months ago, we put the call out to our listeners to say, hey, what would be a good topic for us to do on a plants episode for an episode that comes out at Christmas? And there were many great suggestions from our listeners. And the one that got the most support was gymnosperms. Yeah. This is the group of plants that includes conifers, like people like to put decorations on around this time of the year. Mm Mm-hmm as well as a bunch of other cool plants that are not flowering plants, but nonetheless super cool and important. This episode, after the break, Allie will be with us to talk about what gymnosperms are, what we know about their evolutionary history, and why they're super cool and important. It'll be a lot of fun. Yes. I mentioned that many listeners suggested this as a topic. Those listeners were as follows. Jorge, Loeli, Lachette, Drew, Jackie, Susanna... Philip, Kel, Sal, and wouldn't you know it, this is also the topic that Allie wanted to do for the Christmas <laughs> episode, so it worked out quite nicely. Convenient! <laughs> now, before we get into the main episode stuff, we have a few announcements to make. First and foremost, as usual, we have a Patreon. Mm-hmm. Our patrons on Patreon support the podcast with their financial support and also their comments and in being involved in our behind-the-scenes extra stuff, which is moral support for us, which we appreciate. Patrons get all sorts of goodies, like said behind the scene content, but also, at a certain level, we will shout the names of new patrons out on the episodes. This episode, our last shout-out for this year, we would like to welcome Jonathan... And do you think he saw us? <laughs> Fantastic. Wonderful. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much for your support. If you, dear listener, would like to support the podcast, consider becoming a patron or consider joining us in any of the links that you find in the episode description to our social media, our Discord, any number of ways to become part of our fan community and help us to keep our science education efforts going. Speaking of keeping our efforts going, we've been saying this is the last episode of the year, which is kind of true. There is one more thing that will be coming out right at the end of 2022, and that is our end of the year Q&A. As of this recording and as of the release, the submission form for questions for the Q&A is closed, and indeed, it has been recorded. Yes, we've done it. We already did it. It is so long. We answered so many questions submitted by our listeners Thank you for sending those in. Yeah, so many good questions. Check out the end of the year Q&A, which will come out right at the end of the year, and enjoy it in your spare four or five hours that you have (laughs) to listen to us talk. Hey, speaking of the time of the year, one of the things you'll notice down in the episode description is a physical mailing address. 
sometimes our listeners like to send us cool stuff. And we just got a bunch of cool stuff. Really cool stuff. Presents. Let's see, what did we get? One of our uh, listeners, Clara, sent us this excellent, wonderful deck of cards. Yeah. With uh, ancient animal art in it. Yeah, it's really cool. Like, the kings, queens, and jacks are dinosaurs, but also flipped just like top and bottom, just like a typical playing card. Yeah. It's really cool. Also, the art on the back of the cards. Yeah. That design is really pretty. Thank you so much, Clara. Speaking of cards, we also got a little packet of Dinotopia cards from Katie. Yeah, some collector's cards with scenes from the book and like excerpts from the books on the back. Yeah, which I think is specifically for you. Yeah. And supposedly there's one coming for me, but it, <laughs> as of this recording, it has not shown up yet. So, oh, well, thank you at some other point. We'll be checking the mail next few days. And finally, we got mail from Tracy, which is just a bunch of D&D stuff. Yeah. Super cool. Got a dice tray and a bunch of dice that seem to be made of stone. Yeah, very cool dice and a little dice bag. Mm-hmm. The dice tra- the, the dice themselves are super awesome. The dice bag is great. I am inordinately excited about this dice tray. Like the other stuff is like super cool dice and even the containers for the dice are cool. Mm-hmm. And this nice dice bag. And I feel like it would be very easy to overlook the dice tray <laughs> among those things. But I'm so excited about this dice tray. <laughs> yeah, you, you've been kind of itching for a dice tray for and a Back bit. at Dragon Con, I was hemming and hawing about whether to buy a dice tray. <laughs> so that I'm, I'm, I'm excited about all of it. And yeah, dice tray. Very fun. <laughs> Very cool. Thank you all so much for sending us these gifts. Yes, no, these are wonderful. It, it's really cool whenever we get stuff from listeners. And just thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. And finally, one last announcement. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. We hope that everyone out there is having a happy holiday right now. This episode comes out on Christmas, which is also part of Hanukkah this year. Mm-hmm. There are plenty of holidays to celebrate at this time of the year. Whatever you celebrate, and even if you don't celebrate anything, we hope you're having a wonderful holiday season, and we hope you have a happy new year. Yes, indeed. I'll be home by the time you're listening to this. I'll be here, (laughs) enjoying the solitude. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, we'll wrap up the announcements and move on to the news. Every episode, we like to pick some news from the world of paleontology, evolutionary science, and the like. To talk about here on the podcast, keep us all up to date with what's going on in the world. Will, this is the last news of 2022. What'd you got? Fossil sorting robot. Oh, I'm on board. Right? (laughs) This is research about a robot that is potentially going to be helpful in sorting very, very small fossils and even identifying them. Oh, cool. This is research by Turner Richmond et al. in Geochemistry, Geophysics, and Geosystems. And the article is by Charlotte Hu in Popular Science. Hey, that article will be linked in the blog post. So the fossils we're talking about are Foraminifera, which we've mentioned tons of times here on the podcast. These are teeny tiny little single-celled protists that leave behind shells. They make these shell structures that protects them. But when they die, those shells are left behind and... These shells are super common. Today in the ocean, they're super common. They make up a bunch of the sand on the seafloor. But they're also extremely, extremely famous in the fossil record. Paleontologists love foraminifera. Forams, as they're often called. By their friends. Yep. (laughs) Have been around for 500 million years. So their fossils are pretty much ubiquitous throughout all marine sediment for uh, the majority of fossil record. So we can use them 
to tell us a lot about what the oceans were like, both dating that sediment based on what forams are there, but also doing chemical analyses and studying the types of forams can tell us things about the chemistry or the temperature of the ocean at that time. So it's helpful for saying how old is this, because these forams were only alive during this time, you know, this species, for instance, but also what kind of ocean was happening. But these are itty bitty, like millimeters, um, single millimeter wide shells. <laughs> so studying them is time consuming. You have to sort through sand and pick out the shells, identify them, and then you can do all of the info finding studies. And that takes a lot of time and effort because in a single cubic centimeter of seafloor muck, there can be hundreds to thousands of foram fossils. Yeah, great for paleontology, uh, tedious for paleontologists. Exactly. In comes Forabot. <gasps> the for robot paleontologist. The robot paleontologist <laughs> is a robot that can identify and sort forams. And it is really cool because they've made it open source. The programming that you need is open source. And the instructions for off-the-counter robotic pieces that you need are available in the paper. Oh, so anyone can have their own Forabot. So that's the hope is that this can now be used lab, you know, in labs across the country and the world. Yeah, you wouldn't download a robo-paleontologist. <laughs> and basically... What this robot does is after the paleontologists wash and sieve the sediment, they place it in a, a little place where the robot can now pull from, and it will use a suction device to pick up a small bit, puts it in a funnel, which is the isolation tower. This is where it is isolating the mm -hmm. forams. The funnel can vibrate to shake them down and agitate them around, and then there's a needle in the middle that will raise up and lift a single foram up. And then it can pick that up with the suction device, move it over to the imaging tower, where it will also be lifted up, and now the camera can take pictures of it. And with the programming, with those pictures, it can ID what kind of foram it is, and then move it again to a sorting platform with cat with little pockets based on whatever species it's sorting. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Currently... This is a prototype, like this paper sure. was the testing, you know, the proof of concept. That's what this was. At this point, it can process 27 forams an hour, Ooh. which comes around to like 600 a day. So not super fast. Sure. You know, it's not just blowing through them, but that uh, is that's, all that's time. 600 that a person now doesn't have to do. Exactly. And it is reasonably accurate when they went back through and then individually id you know actual human id'd what the robot had done they found 79 percent accuracy for its classification hey not bad robot so it's still making mistakes sure but very likely that percentage will get better as we continue to refine the programming refine the robot as well as they're hoping that they will be able to speed it up and have it sort more forams and mm -hmm. more in less time they mentioned that they aimed for it to be low cost, so this should be a fairly affordable robot to make. This isn't like a little, it looks like an erector set. Like, it's just metal pieces with a couple of moving parts that can move the forearms to and from. And I'm showing David a picture of Oh, wow, the paper. it does. And the paper oh, it is open me, source. It makes, me it makes me think of Mousetrap. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> the paper is open source, so you can see these pictures in the paper if you look at the blog link. But yeah, it's just a very simple, you pour the forams in, and then it will start sorting 
And currently, the program that they're using, which is uh, modified from a neural network called VGG16, sure. is only able to classify six species. And to get it to where it is right now, it was pre-trained with 34,000 4AM images. Wow. So they taught the program what to look for with those Im- images uh, collected from the Endless Forums project, a previous project that had all those images. That's awesome. Right? But as they go on, they hope to add more species, so it will be able to have a wider classification ability and improve its accuracy in time. So this is just step one, but so far it seems like a pretty solid proof of concept. You would still have to double check sure. the results, but it would be over 70% accurate yeah. according to this. That's really interesting to see because this is a thing, and we've mentioned this before, this comes up a lot. Uh, It'll come up at the museum when we talk to guests is people will point at some aspect of paleontology and say, couldn't you automate that? Yep. And the answer so often is, well, no, we don't really have a good way to do that. Yeah, not really. And this is a very limited way. We're not, you know, all out of a job uh, anytime soon, but it's very cool to see uh, new technology being used to help with what can often be a really daunting task, especially with microfossils and marine microfossils. So this, this is a very exciting beginning to hopefully a bunch of new technological innovations. Absolutely. Well, and if there is anyone out there that's like, should we give over a task to a robot? Mm-hmm. I view this very much like us using computers. In the past, if we wanted to do a statistical study, we had to do the math on paper. Right. Like you can do statistics without a computer. But the computer makes it a lot faster and typically more accurate. So, And in this case, obviously, there's tons of room for error, mm-hmm. things that will need to be sorted out. Also, speaking as a vertebrate paleontologist, <laughs> I am entirely happy with the origins of this uh, kind of thing being with foraminifera. Oh, yeah. They need it. Oh, yes. <laughs> that is That is very, that is a great place for that to be, just to, to sort through thousands of forams to come to fundamental conclusions about ancient ecosystems. I, me and my snake vertebrae can wait. Yep. You, you perfected, <laughs> you enjoy. <laughs> well, speaking of incredibly informative microscopic things that require specialized techniques to recover, I've got news about ancient DNA. There you go. What robot uh, found this DNA? Uh, this robot's name? No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> This is research about ancient environmental DNA that is also the oldest DNA that we've recovered. Cool. Very cool stuff. This is research by a person, Kurt Kiar et al. in the journal Nature, and we'll link in the blog post to an article on PBS Nova by Alyssa Greenberg. This ancient DNA is from about 2 million years ago, which... Uh, sets the record for confirmed ancient DNA by quite a bit. Yeah, that's uh, old. We talked about, uh, not too long ago, the ancient mammoth DNA that I think was 1.2, 1. 1.4. 1. Mm-hmm. So this is old. That's, yeah, wow. This puts it in the early Pleistocene epoch, which is a time period where Arctic ecosystems, which is what they're studying in this paper, Arctic ecosystems are poorly known from this time period. Interesting. And that has to do with just the rarity of fossils, Part of that is because since that time, there's been lots of glacial movement in that region, which has scoured away a lot of near-surface sediments. I just sketched it a bit. So this means that we have limited information about the Arctic 
during this time period, which is a real shame because our other evidence from this time period tells us that this was a time when global climate conditions were very similar to what we are currently heading towards. So if we want to use the past to predict the future, this is a particular section of the past that we'd really like to get a look at. Well, especially because it's more recent than other times where we have evidence similar. So it would be a little more familiar. In this study, they recovered environmental DNA. So we've talked about this before. You can look at sediment and pull DNA out of the dirt, basically. We do that with modern ecosystems and with some fossil ecosystems. And the DNA in the dirt is just all the stuff that walks through and leaves hair and pee and whatever else behind, donating some genetic material to the land. The cause. Which then we can sort through and identify what lives here. In this case, the sediment comes from cores from northern Greenland. They listed 51 samples from multiple sites from the same geologic formation, about 2 million years old, which makes it extremely old DNA. (laughs) Older than many estimates have predicted DNA could reliably last. Yes. And the authors point out that what might be part of why this DNA was able to survive so long is that the DNA in these samples was bonded to the minerals in the sediment. Oh, wow. The quartz and the clay and the, the, the minerals that were there had formed a bond with the DNA, which might be why they were able, why these genetic molecules were able to persist this long. Interesting. It also, as the article nicely goes into detail about, made them even harder to recover from the sediment because <laughs> they had to pull the DNA off of the pieces. So they had to de- uh, develop new techniques to retrieve the DNA, to separate it from the sediment, from the minerals, before they could sequence it. Wow, so this DNA was trapped in crystal stasis. Yes. <laughs> or it was just hugging on real tight. No, 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 this is my quartz. This yes. quartz has been my friend for two million These are my years. jewels. <laughs> Not after they retrieved it, they then had to sort it. And the way that we do this, briefly described, is by comparing the sequences of DNA that were found in the sediment to databases to libraries of known DNA Mm -hmm. from modern and fossil organisms. In doing so, they were able to identify 102 different genera of plants from the sediments compared to eight that had been known from fossils before this (laughs) and nine different types of animals uh, where previously the fossils had only given us a single hair tooth and some insects. Wow. Wow. Altogether, the plants and animals show an open boreal forest. The plants include things like poplar, birch, thuja, various shrubs and herbs. There's also green algae. The animals include hares, reindeer, rodents, geese, mastodons, horseshoe crabs. That's pretty cool. Nice. Not only do these give a sense of what kind of habitat that this was, but many of those organisms belong to groups that don't live here in that region today. Many are found further south, like many of the plants, the crabs, also ancient caribou and mastodons are also not known to have gotten this far north. Wow. So this tells us something about the range of ancient organisms and paints a picture, as the article was describing it, of a lush green northern Greenland at this time. Huh. So insights into what the Arctic was like two million years ago But also, of course, 
an extremely useful technique for recovering super ancient. They didn't call it super ancient DNA. That's my word. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to catch on. But for me, in my head, I have categorized it as super ancient DNA. Yep. Which can be very informative, especially in places where we don't have a lot of fossils. Very interesting. Man, ancient DNA is is such a cool bit of research capability and technology. And this is amazing because it is it is so much older than I would have ever expected and most people would have expected. Sure. And it is ridiculously informative. Yes. It almost feels like cheating. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, the article that we will link does have a bunch of discussion about the limitations mm-hmm. of ancient DNA and these kinds of techniques, which is important because like the robot, this is one of those things that can be very easy to go, all right, well then... Aren't we done? Yeah. Why are we doing anything else? Right. Let, let's. Ju- all right. Great. DNA. We have all the answers now. But they make a number of points. Uh, for one, DNA can't be directly dated. Mm-hmm. So we need other evidence alongside of it to get good ages. DNA can only tell us so much about ancient organisms. If we want to know their diet or how they moved around, we still need fossils to help us with that. And... DNA identification is limited by what references we have available. Yes, precisely. So they make the point that they identified Mastodon, but one of the authors is in the article saying it could be Gompathir. Yeah. A different group of ancient elephants. If we don't have reference DNA to distinguish between those, it can be hard to tell. And if there is an extinct lineage that isn't particularly similar to anything we have today or in recent fossil DNA... That could be completely missed by a DNA sequencing Mm -hmm. with ancient DNA. So the older the DNA gets, it actually accrues difficulties that you don't have to worry about with even younger DNA. So like the robot, this is still new technology that is developing. But as it continues to develop, these kinds of techniques will become incredibly important and informative. Absolutely. And it's a very good point that we can only study ancient DNA if we have examples that allow us to study it. Like, if you somehow magically got a strand of T-Rex DNA, there'd be no way for scientists today to confirm that it's T-Rex. Or even to find it in the sorting. Like, your your sorting might not recognize it as a match to any of your reference DNA. Mm-hmm. You might just miss it completely. Yeah. Very awesome. Uh, my next research is not... Uh, nearly as uh, sci-fi as robots (laughs) and ancient DNA. But it does have to do with ankylosaurs and some evidence as to how at least one species might have been using its club tail. Oh. This is research by Victoria Arbor et al. in Biology Letters, and the article is by Jake Bueller in Science News. So ankylosaurs, the armored dinosaurs, we've done an episode about them. Episode 69. They often had... Armored tails, some with clubs on the tail. Used for whacking stuff, presumably. And a very common idea is that that was a defensive tool used to ward off predators, to defend themselves from attack. But it's also been hypothesized that it could be used for competition between ankylosaurs, that males or females, individuals, could compete either over mates or territory or food, what have you. This research seems to support that second idea. They looked at Zool. Zool Cruivastator, the destroyer of shins. (laughs) Zool was one of the very first newses we discussed Mm -hmm. because it inspired the first ever piece of fan art we got. Indeed. Way back in the day. 
this was that really beautifully preserved uh, Ankylosaur that just made all the news because it was it was so incredible. Yeah. This is further research on that holotype specimen. They were looking at the armor and found some pathologies on the armor plates, on the osteoderms, specifically on the flanks, on the hip region. They noticed some broken spikes, five broken spikes to be specific, on that side area of the animal. Hmm. Now, this is interesting because they noted that the damage seems to be clustered. It seems to be kind of focused. When they did a statistical analysis, they found a pattern to it instead of a randomized amount of damage, which is what they said they would most likely suspect if it were predatory damage. Like if they were being attacked, that it would be a bit more random. It would be spread out as well as it should be coupled with tooth or claw marks right. from the attack. But this seems to be fairly consistent area of damage, or at least focused damage, which they say fits much more nicely with the idea of competitive tail swinging, Mm -hmm. interacting with another ankylosaur and hitting each other with their tails. Repeatedly in the same place. Exactly, that they're lining up against each other. Squaring up. Yes, and then hitting each other, and that we see similar damages on other competing animals today, you know, that you see the similar pattern because they're doing it the same way every time. Mm Mm-hmm. They said this lines up with other evidence that has also been pointed out to support the idea of the tails being for competition. The fact that there's a high amount of variation to the tail clubs, that they aren't all the same shape, that they are finding very distinct species by species shape, which is another thing we see with like antlers and stuff in competitive animals day, that different species have distinct tools for competition. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, the tail club follows an ontogenetic growth that it is not present when they're small. It is smaller and gets bigger with age. Right. As they reach, potentially, sexual maturity and adulthood, and now they have a new reason to have a big tail club. Exactly. You're not competing when you're young, but as an adult, it's time to start fighting the other adults. They once again compare that to things like antlers. Yep. (laughs) That it follows the same patterns of other weapons we see in animals that are being used mostly to fight their own species. Yeah, episode 140. They do make the point that, and I'd like they said, it's little doubt that the tail club could have been used for defense. Sure. Like, absolutely, yeah. this is a, an effective weapon against whoever you use it against. Why not both? And that's true of horns and stuff today, that they still will use those against predators. Yeah, I don't want to fight a moose. No. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> but they did not feel convinced that the evidence supports a predator fueled selective pressure right that that might not have been the main driver of the evolution of this structure that might be a secondary a happy coincidence oh and now i happen to have this let's knock this t-rex around precisely they also said that this can potentially shift the way we typically look at ankylosaurs because very often they are portrayed or discussed as solitary you know not very social or at least that's not typically discussed with them Right. And often their fossils are found isolated. Mm -hmm. We don't have herds of ankylosaurs like we do with some other dinosaurs. But if this is evidence of species, you know, in in their own species competition, then that is social interaction. Mm -hmm. So they may have been more social or at least more socially complex than we typically give ankylosaurs credit for. Yeah. I also love the image of them squaring up. So much competition within a species is very ritualized. Mm-hmm. They're standing and they're stomping and they're sizing up and there there is a pattern to it. And I love the thought of there being 
a stance yes. with the ankylosaurs that they they line up right next to each other they start swinging you could have this sort of ritual combat with ankylosaurs which is pretty cool well it makes me think of giraffes where they do their their necking where mm-hmm. the males swing the necks at each other but to do that the males have to stand side by side facing the same way yes so if two males want to fight they would walk toward each other but they're not going to fight face to face yeah, they have to go past each other <laughs> yep. Also, can you imagine the sound oh, yeah. of Ankylosaur, f- like, just echoing across the fields? Just... <laughs> Wham! Just a sledgehammer against rock. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very cool. Well, my last bit of news, the last bit of news for 2022 is a Christmas present to me. <laughs> this is news. If you follow science news on the internet, uh, many of you have probably seen these headlines going around because it has taken the internet by storm. This is research about snake clitorises. (laughs) This research is by Megan Falwell et al. in Proceedings of the Royal Society B. And we will link to an article in Live Science by Joanna Thompson. I will also, I might put an additional link to an article in The Atlantic by Catherine Wu, which I found to be delightful, but it's not accessible to everybody. So we'll link to Live Science, but I'll put the additional one as well, because it's also pretty cool. Now, before we get into the details... Let's talk about reproductive organs. Reproductive organs are commonly studied by researchers when seeking to understand reproductive biology, reproductive evolution. A lot of these studies focus on penises and clitorises, which are important functional parts of the reproductive system. These kinds of organs tend to be full of nerves and vessels, Mm -hmm. which allows them to change shape and receive and send signals These aren't organs that are just there. They're doing stuff. They're active, they're dynamic, and they're an important part of the interaction between mating organisms and of receiving and sending signals to the rest of the body to prepare the whole system for reproduction and copulation and all the all the things you need to do. Yeah, yeah. A lot of animals go into a reproduction mode, like their body goes through a shift so that they can actually reproduce. They're also evolutionarily very important because, of course, reproduction is extremely important in evolution. (laughs) That's how evolution happens. Yep. So reproductive organs tend to evolve really quickly. They tend to be very specific species to species. So studying them is really important for understanding the evolutionary history of reproduction. So studies about reproductive organs grab headlines because they're headline-grabbing words that they get to put up there. But these are really important structures for us to understand for evolution and biology. Now, on the note of snakes, there has been lots of research on snake penises. Specifically, snakes, like other lizards, have a structure called a hemipenis, Mm -hmm. called a hemipenis, or plural hemipenis, Mm -hmm. which are basically a two-pronged organ. They vary immensely in shape. They often have spines and frills and hooks. They're very flashy looking organs yeah they they are much more complicated than you're probably picturing unless you've already (laughs) seen a picture of one this study is the first to describe snake clitorises or as it turns out hemiclitoris (laughs) or hemiclitoris oh okay the plural which i I love i love learning new words yeah up until now there has been basically no study on the snake clitoris in fact, some previous research has suggested that the that they are completely lost in snakes or even vestigial 
which, if that were true, would be weird because nearly all vertebrates have clitorises, except for birds. Oh. I don't have any more information on that. I'm as perplexed as you are. Oh. Birds are the exception. But you'd expect lizards have them, mammals have them. You'd expect snakes to do so. Here, this study confirms it. With examinations and descriptions of the hemiclitoris of nine different species of snakes in four different families, these researchers went all out. This is a very detailed uh, description. And they found a handful of interesting things about these organs. Unlike in lizards, snake hemiclitorises are non-eversible. So a snake hemipenis can be turned inside out. All right. They, they turn it one way to tuck it away in its little pocket inside the body. And then they evert it or turn it inside out, essentially making it an external organ when it's time for reproduction. Uh, lizard and lizards hemiclitoris apparently can do this as well. Oh. At least sometimes. These and the snakes did not. They also found that like the penises of snakes, the clitorises are full of blood vessels and nerve bundles, which suggests that they are not vestigial or sitting around doing nothing. They're functional and probably really important for reproductive biology in snakes. Yeah, they're doing something. They're, they're active, they're re receiving and sending signals, all the things we expect. They also noted that among the species they looked at, there was a bunch of variation in the shape of the hemiclitoris, just like we see in snake hemipenis. Okay. Which, again, could be functional differences between different species. This could also be a new way to identify different species. Mm -hmm. Genitalia are very often used for IDing species. Yep, yep. So, with all that said, the exact function isn't totally clear, but it's likely that in snakes, just like in tons of other animals, the clitoris is a structure that is involved in preparing the reproductive system and the snake itself for reproduction. So all that's cool to know, insights into the snake reproductive system for sure, but also the articles and the papers spend a good amount of time discussing where this fits into trends in scientific research. In snakes, male reproductive organs have been studied immensely more than female snakes, and this is a common trend in biology. Yeah. It's very common that reproductive systems are studied more in males than in females. This is true for lots of different species. It's also been historically true for humans yep. in medical studies. And a lot of scientists, including these researchers, have pointed out that this trend gives us a lopsided understanding of reproductive biology. We're only looking at half the picture. We can be missing a lot of important information. And they talk about why this trend might exist. And there are plenty of different factors that tie <laughs> in here. But they point out that for one thing, uh, female reproductive organs can sometimes be more difficult to study because in many, many species, male reproductive organs tend to be larger and easier to access. But also that there are absolutely cultural roadblocks that get in the way of interest in those studies or funding for those studies. There can be cultural taboos or squeamishness. Yep. I'm sure there have been many people online who have been seeing the headline snake clitorises and going, oh, why are, what, what's, what's up with that? Why are we talking about that? And that kind of mentality can hinder scientific exploration. And that sort of lopsidedness can lead to misunderstandings about animal reproduction. For example, they point out that in snakes uh, and in lizards, for a long time, scientists 
described snake and lizard reproduction as being mostly male-driven. That the males of the species were the ones taking most of the actions and making most of the choices because they had all this information about male snake reproductive systems and how they act and how they interact during reproduction and not very much about the other side, which made it seem like, well, yeah, all the activity is happening over on this one side. Yeah, look how much more information there is. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The article points out that there was at least one paper from the 90s that suggested that the clitoris in lizards was there just to provide stimulation for the male organ during reproduction. Mm-hmm. That it was a very one-sided view of how these organisms are interacting with each other. So this study is not only super cool, because A, it's about snakes, best animals, also fascinating new information, completely new insights into an unstudied organ in snakes for their reproductive system, but also a part of this really interesting trend in scientific studies that is being slowly addressed with ongoing research. Yeah, it's cool that this was not only able to you know, bring awareness to an, a discovery, but also awareness to a bias that much of the scientific field has had on this topic. Yes. Very neat. So the takeaway from here is do more studies about snake sex. Mm-hmm. Very cool stuff. Cool insights to be had. (laughs) Well, that's the end of the news for this, the year 2022, which means we can move on to our final episode topic of the year. After the break, we will be joined for the last time this year by Dr. Allie Baumgartner, our favorite paleobotanist, who will start our discussion on gymnosperms by answering such questions as, what's a gymnosperm? Christmas tree, Christmas tree. <laughs> As usual with plant episodes, Will and I are excited to learn. So join us after the break and learn with us. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Allie. Merry Christmas, David. <laughs> Welcome back to the podcast. How you doing? I'm already cold. Like we're <laughs> it's it's already cold. It's out. already cold out. Uh, so I am all bundled up and really excited to talk about plants. I'm always excited to talk about plants, but especially today. We are excited to have you back for plants. This episode, as you know, we are talking about gymnosperms. In the spirit of the holiday season. This is our Christmas episode. Yes. Possibly the only one that ever happens. (laughs) An episode that releases on Christmas. Yes. And we've already done an episode about angiosperms. Episode 57, The Origins of Flowering Plants. So this episode, we turn to everybody's other favorite uh, extremely diverse group of plants, which includes conifers. (laughs) Yay. As well as some other stuff. Uh, so thanks for coming back and celebrating this episode with us. I'm, I'm so excited, especially considering this is what I had in mind <laughs> when you told me that yes, th- th- the next episode. This was your request. This was my request. <laughs> this is what I wanted. And I got it. Well, let us go ahead and jump in. First and foremost, gymnosperms is a fancy science word. Yes. So Allie, if you would please, what is a gymnosperm? A lot of the discussions of gymnosperms, like a lot of what I'm talking about, is going to be 
describing them in comparison to angiosperms. Sure. <laughs> because it's the other big group of plants that we're used to seeing on a regular basis. So Because gymnosperms are the plants that aren't angiosperms. Yeah, basically. Yes. <laughs> like technically there are other things, but by and large, those are the ones. So broadly speaking, gymnosperms are vascular, meaning that they have tubes inside of them so they can move water nutrients. They can get big. They are seed-bearing, so unlike our spore-bearing friends, but crucially, they lack fruit. They don't have flowers. They don't have fruits. And that's where the name gymnosperm comes from. It comes from uh, the name naked seed because there's nothing covering the seed. Mm -hmm. I saw it once translated as revealed seed. No, 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 no. Naked. Naked seed. Nothing covering it. <laughs> Inappropriate. <laughs> This is biology, y'all. <laughs> so, so when you think of a gymnosperm, you are probably going to be thinking of some sort of like conifer. And you're that's what a lot of them do look like. So you're probably thinking of something, a woody tree. And honestly, that's a whole lot of, of gymnosperms. There's not as much uh, variety. So that most of them are woody with an exception in one group that we'll talk about. And they are all perennials. So they all live for more than a year, which is not the same thing that we see in angiosperms. So there are four groups of gymnosperms that are around today. Conifers, cycads, ginkgo biloba, <laughs> and <laughs> nidophytes or natalians. I'll probably be using those two terms uh, interchangeably. So examples of the four main types, going from most recognizable to a layperson to least recognizable to a layperson. So... When I talk about conifers, that's what you are probably thinking of when you are thinking of gymnosperm. So that's going to be your pines and your firs and your spruces and your cedars. Most of most of the gymnosperms that we, us here in North America, are familiar with are going to be conifers. Right. The kind of trees you cut down and bring into your house around this time of the year. Exactly. Yes. And it's, it's, it's fascinating because people will actually sometimes use conifer as a synonym for gymnosperm, which is not fair. There's three other types. <laughs> right. <laughs> so in terms of being recognizable, next is ginkgo biloba. So it is also a gymnosperm, even though it does have these broad leaves that you might think by looking at it that it is an angiosperm. It also, I'll get into this more later, but like it looks like it has fruit. It doesn't. That's a lie. <laughs> False fruit. <laughs> yes. Uh, they're really common street trees. They are very commonly uh, planted in cities. So, you know, there was there were ginkgo biloba inside the biology complex at uh, ETSU. And so we got to yeah. see the beautiful leaves and smell the terrible fruits uh, in the fall. <laughs> false fruits. Yes, false fruits. We had ginkgos across the street from our biology department at my undergrad as well. Yeah. I don't know if that's just a biology department thing hmm. to have ginkgos nearby, but... It, it feels appropriate. <laughs> right? <laughs> These are the ones with the, the fan-shaped leaves yes. that like fan out yes so they are yeah they look like a fan that's the best way to describe it and they're called biloba because they tend to have kind of a little crease in the middle to make it kind of two lobes to the fan some of them can be much more lobes some of them it's basically just a triangle <laughs> the, the next most common are going to be cycads cycads are often mistaken for palms or for uh tree ferns they are 
shaped like pineapples. <laughs> <laughs> so the base of them is a not a true wood stalk. The rigidity of it comes from the persistent leaf bases, so the kind of scales on the outside, and then it has fronds coming off the top. And then finally, I give you my favorite neophyte, which is Wilwichia. It is one of the weirdest plants I've ever met. I have met one. Uh, not in the wild, but I have met one. Um, so they have a very restricted range. Today, they're only found in the Namib, the Namib Desert. But they're really common in botanical gardens because they're wild plants. So they have a very short little stalk. You probably wouldn't even notice it. They're pretty much flush to the ground. And then they have two leaves that come out of either side. Uh, and they grow from the base. So kind of like grass does so they're basically just like getting longer and longer and longer from the bottom but they will rip and so these the two leaves look like they're a whole lot more and it basically forms what looks like a big bird nest made of just like stringy leaves it's a funny looking plant i love it so much i've seen it weird yeah i've seen it like i think it was in the missouri botanical gardens it was like perched on top of a podium so that the leaves would just like gracefully fall down to the side <laughs> so that they weren't getting all tangled and ripped up yeah no they're really cool looking plants they're so weird <laughs> they're so weird but yeah no neophytes in general weirdos <laughs> so i know we'll go more into sort of diversity and descriptions of, of gymnosperms and i'm really interested to get into like how their lifestyles and distribution uh, are distinct but just to sort of hammer the point home that most of the plants we're familiar with belong to one group, and that's angiosperms. But at first glance, gymnosperms don't seem all that different, like a spruce tree and a pine tree. So what distinguishes these two plants in ways that uh, go beyond just sort of that, that, that brief definition? So... Like generally speaking, they are the two groups of plants. Like th these two groups of plants are very similar to each other. But if we go into, like I had mentioned, you've got the fruits and flowers in the angiosperms. Um, you, you lack both of those things. and You only have these woody cones. But there, even past that, there are additional differences. Most of which actually kind of go back to those, those, that, that, that difference. So, for example, all gymnosperms are wind pollinated. Sometimes they'll get an assist from an animal, but like... All angiosperms are, or gymnosperms are wind pollinated. That's definitely not the case with angiosperms. <laughs> yeah, so so you're saying gymnosperms aren't being visited by butterflies and bees and pollinators. Right. That the wind's just blowing yeah. the pollen at one another. Yep, basically. In the past, there was a little bit more variety, but now, no, we're basically exclusively wind pollinated, which makes a lot of sense if you have ever parked under a pine tree because there's yes. <laughs> yellow all over your car. It's just pollen. Oh, yeah. The other main thing, in addition to the just the pollination strategy, is the wood itself. Angiosperms are typically considered hardwoods, and gymnosperms are typically considered softwoods. The reason for that is related to the actual like physical structure of the wood. So the xylem in gymnosperms is 90% or like 90% of the wood. So all of the xylem, but 90% of the wood in gymnosperms tends to be tracheids, which is just a particular type of xylem cell that allows water to go through. 
they tend to not have a lot of holes in them. They do have some, but they tend to not have a lot of holes in them. So they are less efficient than angiosperms, which have vessel elements. Vessel elements actually interconnect a whole lot more. It's also really nice because the vessel elements in angiosperms allow them to seal off parts of the tree. So if they get a bubble inside, they can seal off that vessel element and divert the flow into other tubes so that you don't have to worry about, because you can't suck, you can't suck the bubble up. <laughs> like this is a passive system. They're not going to be able to get it out. Right. Gymnosperms don't have a mechanism for that. So if they get a bubble in one of their tubes, that tube, the whole tube is just out of commission. Yes, exactly. And that could be a problem. There are records of, and this could be a lot of like anecdotal stuff of like the trees exploding. They'll get an embolism, the freeze thaw. But that genuinely is a problem for uh, gymnosperms because like they're they're working all winter and they they tend to be mm. found in, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but they tend to be found in these places where, yeah, y'all, you'll get below freezing there. And so that's, that is something that can be a problem for them. It freezes, it thaws, they get a bubble. That tube's out a lot. Interesting. So, so general feature that separates them is angiosperms have more complex plumbing. Yes. Than gymnosperms. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Also fascinating to think that an air bubble is also a problem for trees. Yes. Right. Because that's that, that that happens to us. Yeah, absolutely. In blood, you can get an embolism. I'll I'll be honest. There were multiple things when I was reading this. I'm like, I just feel so much in common with these plants. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that you're very excited to. Share with us uh, your conifer friends and all of the friends of conifer friends. So please go ahead. Give us some more about the diversity and distribution of modern gymnosperms. Where do they live? What do they look like? Uh, let's get to know gymnosperms today before we start talking about gymnosperms of the past. I I would love to. Oh, my goodness. So as I know. <laughs> I'm losing it over here. Gymnosperms. So as I mentioned at the beginning, they're pretty much all woody with the exception of cycads that are, they're trying, they're, they're, they'll get there one day, maybe. Uh, they tend to all be perennial. So they're living for multiple years and sometimes many, 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 many multiple years. So for, for anybody else out there who is not completely up to date with their plant terms like I am. Yes. Perennial means living for multiple years. Yes. Which is unusual compared to a lot of plants that are... Annuals. So the... the one and done. Yes. So that would be an annual. Um, you, tend, you tend to have perennials in woody plants because if you're going to put all of that work into making wood, like you're going to stick around for a while to enjoy it. You tend to yeah. have an annual lifestyle in... Uh, herbaceous plants and weedy plants and things that like like you know lilies and corn like that thing is not resilient enough <laughs> to stick around for multiple growing seasons but that means that there are no herbaceous gymnosperms there are no things that aren't woody so there are no things that are you know little weedy little things that are only going to show up for a year which makes a lot of sense i had never considered that before <laughs> yeah <laughs> interesting yeah. They're not weeds. Gymnosperms, not weeds. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah, they don't yeah, they, they don't just sprout up and disappear. Yeah. Yeah, they stick around. And well, <laughs> that that's going to be a, a a refrain of of gymnosperms, but Sure. <laughs> uh, so gymnosperms today occupy fewer ecological niches than angiosperms. When you think about, you know, modern terrestrial landscapes, most of these biomes that you're thinking about 
are named for the angiosperms that live there. Like when you think about them, you're, you are seeing angiosperms and there are definitely biomes where gymnosperms dominate, right? Like taiga, tundra, like that's, that's, that's where these things live, but they have evolved parasite form. There's a parasite, there's an epiphyte and there's a rheophyte. And I'll get to that in a second. So they, they got some diversity. 65% of all gymnosperms are dioecious. So dioecious, monoecious, dioecious. I have to define them. I will define them multiple times. Don't worry because I'm pretty sure these are Greek figures. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. That hung out with Hercules. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, obviously. So dioecious means two houses. So basically that means that each plant is a single sex. So it takes two different plants, two houses in order to fertilize and have all the parts you need to reproduce. Monoecious means one house. So that means that you can have male cones and female cones on the same tree. That doesn't necessarily mean that they'll self-fertilize, but they got all the plumbing that they need in order to do reproduction all on one tree. So they can do both jobs. Yes, multitasking. So 65% of gymnosperms are dioecious. So first, the conifers. When you're thinking about a gymnosperm, you're thinking about conifers. So we're going to spend a little bit of time with the conifers so that we can get to know them a little bit better. And and it is the season. Yes. Welcome them into your home. <laughs> Tis the season of the cone bearer. That's what conifer means. The cone bearer. Okay. Which is a great name. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, two houses, cone bearer. This sounds like Game of Thrones. It does. It, does. Yes, it, it really, does. It truly does. <laughs> Biology, man. Botany is the best. <laughs> So conifers, they are the biggest uh, and most species rich of all of the gymnosperms. There's every single number I'm going to give you for the taxonomy, phylogeny, systematics of of all gymnosperms. You're going to notice there's some wiggle room. Plants are difficult, okay? So there are six to eight families, 65 to 70 genera, and between (laughs) 600 and 630 living species. Okay, so that's that's not a whole lot, especially when you compare to angiosperms. But like they're doing all right. Yeah, it's not it's not a low number. Yeah, you know it's not it's not like they're uh, struggling. Right, it is utterly respectable. Yes, there are in the six to eight families. Basically, you have the pines, the cedars, the yews, aracarians, podocarps. And the uh, ko- koyomaki, the Japanese umbrella pine. So generally speaking, that's what you got. Those are the types of conifers that you can have. In North America, we tend to have the first three. Pines, cedars, and yews. The other ones tend to yeah. be, well, the Japanese umbrella pine is literally only found in Japan. There's one species mm-hmm. <laughs> found in Japan. Uh, but podocarps and the aracarians tend to be found in the Southern Hemisphere. So... Okay. There are so conifers are often again for us. We typically or I will often hear people use conifer as a synonym for um, or excuse me, evergreen used as a synonym for conifer. And though yes. most conifers are evergreen, there are five genera that are not. Whoa. <laughs> and so like it's it's not necessarily across the board, but that does mean that. If you see a conifer that is losing its its leaves, that doesn't necessarily mean it's sick. It might just be deciduous. <laughs> yeah, so, so they can uh, in those groups mm-hmm. can drop their yep. their needles yep. 
just like a, a, a I was about to say normal tree, <laughs> just like an, an angiosperm. Like a, wow, that bias. <laughs> I know, right? So I know. <laughs> yes, exactly. So evergreen means that they don't lose their yes. leaves. Yes. So like here in the northern hemisphere, for example, we get very excited about autumn. We call it fall because all the leaves come down off of the trees. Mm-hmm. Evergreen plants don't do that. You see a tree in the middle of winter. Like at Christmas time, that still yeah. is green. That's an evergreen tree, and it's it's interesting because one of the things I I learned when I was looking into this is how okay. I'll ask you. I'll ask you this because I didn't know oh the boy. answer until uh, Allie qu- Allie brings quizzes. I know, when right? She's on the podcast. I do. It's my favorite thing. All right. <laughs> how long do you think that evergreen leaves will persist on a tree? So, like a single leaf. What is the lifespan of a single leaf? Do you think? Oh. Is this like skin cells where it's like seven years and a tree replaces all of its leaves? Yeah, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go on the lower end because I I lived in a house where most of the trees around us were pines. Mm -hmm. We had a few oaks and stuff, so we'd get a bunch of acorns, but we would get tons of pine cones and just so many pine needles. Just like there was a constant covering of pine needles. So I'm going to go with a lower, I don't know. What a lower end is, a couple of years maybe. I was going to say a year. Yeah. I was going to say a year on the logic that it's the same thing. Each leaf lasts about a year. Just other trees are dropping them all at the same time. Yes. I like that logic. It's not correct, but I really like it. Great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was smart wrong. So some of them are as, as, as short as a few years, you know, a handful of years. Okay. But on the high end, this blew my mind. This is the fun fact that I keep telling people. For bristlecone pines, so Pinus uh, longeva, some of those leaves can be on a tree for like forty years. Wow! Wow! So th- there are tr- there are leaves. Yes. Older than all three yes. of us. Yes. That was that was the first thought that went through my head. <laughs> there are leaves on those trees that are older than I am. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's really crazy. That I mean, I, I like. It it makes sense, you know, if you if you can just hold on to this vital part that lets you, you know, reconstruct sunlight into food. Why not? But that's a really long time for such a small, like I don't know. You just think of small things as oh, yeah. Yeah. being not as long lived. My so cell phone like, only lasts a few years, <laughs> right? <laughs> like it just seems like the leaves would get damaged and die and fall off. That's so long. Yeah. Right. So we're going to build on that. And now we are going to give you some fun facts that you could share with your family. They blew my mind. This is what I've been telling people. So when you're when you are gathered for Christmas. Yes. While you're decorating yes, the tree. Exactly. <laughs> this, this is the conversation. Yes. Topic. So I want y'all to share with your loved ones some fun facts about gymnosperms. OK, so gymnosperms are the record holders. Of the tallest living tree, the oldest living tree, the thickest living tree, and the largest living tree by volume. So let's get into it. Is, is that all one tree? No, it's, it's all not. the same tree. <laughs> the world eater. But they're all in North America. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. I, I'm always excited when we our continent yeah. gets a claim to fame. Because well, so many of the coolest things in the world are elsewhere. Well, and it, well, I was having that thought when talking about, you know, uh, uh, gymnosperms not having as as wide a habitat dominance, you know, as angiosperms. But that, like, 
to me growing up here, conifers are such an incredibly common, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I've grown up with forests of conifers around me all like very, very often just because they're very common in this area. So they weren't, they've never seemed like a weird thing to me. Right. Oh, they're great. Okay. Ready? Start with the tallest. This one is slightly contentious. There is an angiosperm in the Southern Hemisphere that's giving it a run for its money, but they don't have an accurate measurement, so we won't even mention them. Okay. <laughs> tallest tree. Coast Redwood, obviously. Mm-hmm. So this is Sequoia Sempervirens. 115.55 meters for those Americans. That is 379 feet tall. Wow. That's too much tree. It. But I like if you have never if you have never been in a redwood forest, you feel like an Ewok. Yep. (laughs) Because it it obviously that's where those movies were filmed, but also like you feel so small because you look up in the canopy and the canopy is much further away than you expect it to be. It's a it's a wild feeling. Here's a question actually that I don't know the answer to. Mm -hmm. What is a typical height for trees? Oh, okay. So 100 feet would be a relatively tallish tree. Okay. That makes sense. That's kind of what I had in my head. Yeah. So not like ungainly tall, but like, oh, that's a pretty tall tree. This is like almost four times that. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> this is four times the size of like a good sized tree. Yeah. To, to put it in perspective for anyone who wants a, another visual, uh, this tree is a little bit taller than Godzilla from the recent Godzilla movies. <laughs> <laughs> that Godzilla is 355 feet tall. That is I appreciate next that. movie. <laughs> Sequoia versus Kong. Oh my God. Yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> so that's the tallest. Uh, for contrast, just for fun, the shortest is the Pygmy Pine. Don't. It's uh, Lepidothamnus laxifolius. It's from New Zealand because of course it is. Mm-hmm. And they are less than 30 centimeters tall. Oh, a little tiny it's tree. the pocket size. It's so cute. <laughs> anyway, I just I, f- I felt that that was necessary to include. That's a Christmas tree for your desk. Oh my yes. goodness, it is. <laughs> <laughs> the oldest. Do y'all know who the oldest is? Oh, I I do. I I've learned this, and it's a yeah. really weird looking one. Yes, yep. like it's like all gnarled. Yeah, root looking. It's super weird, and I don't remember. Yes, yeah, so all. that is the Great Basin bristlecone pine. So that is Pinus longeva, like I mentioned before. I think the oldest one is named Methuselah because, like, <laughs> that makes sense if you've ever looked at those trees. <laughs> they they are gnarly looking in the literal definition of that world. <laughs> that word. Yes. So they have been dated to 4,700 years old, nearly 5,000 years old. <laughs> and their leaves are older than us. <laughs> Right. Yep. <laughs> yep. Wow. A 5,000 year old tree. That's it's it's weird when an organism can put like a, a huge portion of human civilization yes. into perspective. Like mm-hmm. the pyramids yes. are somewhere around that age. Yep. Does that mean that? Yes. That means that there were mammoths. That means that there yep, were. Yep. That's yep. what I was going to say. Those trees. <laughs> Those individual trees could have met mammoths. Oh yep. my goodness. Still around today. That wild. Insanity. I love that. I love that. Yes. That's that's a geological number. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. Exactly. Not a lifespan number. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and they're still they're still they're still going. Like, they're yeah. still going. 
So the thickest tree. So this is by the greatest trunk diameter. Okay. This is the widest tree is the Montezuma Cypress. So this is in Mexico and it goes down into uh, Guatemala, but like North America still. So Taxodium mucronatum, 11.42 meters wide. That is 37 feet wide. Wow. Oh, that's too much tree. <laughs> oh my goodness. Got to bring a lot of friends in order to hug that tree. Yeah, I don't have I don't have any comments. That's just, <laughs> just a really big tree. Really big I was trying to do trying to do the diameter math. I was trying to do the circumference that, math in my head real quick, but my brain wasn't cooperating. Tree, that tree is almost as long across as T-Rex <laughs> is long from snout to tail. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's about, a, a T-Rex could hide behind that tree. <laughs> yes. Long ways. Yes. Yep. <laughs> I, I appreciate that thing's the specificity it's almost a hundred feet around yeah. yeah if you're going with if it's a sphere you know if it's sure, a circle sure, yeah it's almost a hundred feet around yeah that's insanity Whew. and the- that that tree is as big around as most normal trees are tall yeah yes <laughs> can wear you can wrap, you can a, wrap a tree tree around it around this tree yes <laughs> And then the largest tree by three-dimensional volume, we're going to be talking cubic feet here, Sure, is the giant sequoia. Makes hey. sense. Yes, right? So sequoia dendron uh, giganteum. It is 1,486.9 cubic meters, which is 52,509 cubic feet. <sighs> That's a house! Yep. Yep. That's Yes, it is. You could. That's a whole house. Yep. That's... <laughs> insane so much tree it's so much tree so yeah i just wanted to, to to share some of uh those fun facts so well it's it with when you get into sizes like you know because we talk we'll talk about like sauropods and whales and have moments of like there are certain things about these that we we have trouble understanding how something that big does all the stuff other animals do you mm-hmm. know like mating or you know what have you and that it is hard to wrap one's mind around an animal that big and then there are these organisms that dwarf those and i'm also having that trouble of like how how does the top and the bottom work in sync at all like right how long does it take water to get from the roots yep to the leaves of that monster tree absolutely does the top leaf take like three weeks to realize it's thirsty (laughs) (laughs) basically and also if a leaf falls off that tree terminal velocity (laughs) and it's just Someday I'll reach the ground, I guess. (laughs) Fortunately, fortunately, uh, the biggest trees, so the sequoia and the redwood, have teeny tiny little cones. So don't worry. They're not going to be like taking people out. Penny off the Empire State Building kind of (laughs) situation. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So uh, in terms of the other weirdos in conifers, so that conifers have the parasite. There's a single one, and it's Parasitaxis is the uh, <laughs> it's the genus, which is a great name. Nice. It's in the family Podocarpaceae, and it's found in New Cal- Caledonia on the roots of another Podocarp, hmm. and it's only ever found there. So New Caledonia is like kind of north. East-ish, kind of east-ish off the coast of uh, Australia. So kind of in the middle of nowhere out there. <laughs> and for comparison, there are tons of parasitic angiosperms. Yes. yes, Boku. Tons of that that climb on other trees or inject themselves into other trees and feed on their nutrients. That's very common uh, thing to see in other plants. 
So only one among conifers is a bit odd. Exactly. There's only one epiphyte, which is a cycad. I'll talk about, you know, I'll mention cycads in a bit. Only one epiphyte, it, like one species. There are entire groups of angiosperms that are epiphyte. Like bromeliads are famously epiphytes. Uh, there's only a single gymnosperm that does that. And then there's a single uh, rheophyte. So a rheophyte is a plant that lives in very fast flowing water. Like the kind that will knock over most normal plants. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah so this one also lives in New Caledonia. And is also <laughs> a podocarp. Huh. So apparently they're doing something right down there. So I'm going to talk a little bit briefly, familiarize you with what's going on with, with conifers, and then we will progress to the rest of our friends. So like I said, they are mostly trees. There are some shrubs. What makes them woody is the fact that they have secondary growth, which is how they can get so girthy. Uh, they tend to have monopodial growth, which is the, the stereotypical like Christmas tree shape. They are just very straight, single uh, trunk with side branches coming basically straight off the sides. They're typically evergreen, but not always. Their leaves tend to be needles or scales. So yep. needles are going to be like your pines. Scales are going to be like your cedars. And they tend to be just really densely, densely packed. But <laughs> there are a few, a very few that are strap-like. So they are a little bit more, re more closely resembling angiosperm leaves. They're broader. The venation is different. But at first glance, you could easily confuse it for an angiosperm. The reproduction <laughs> of these things is wild. So most conifers are monoecious. Most gymnosperms are dioecious. Most conifers are monoecious. That means that they got everything they need in their house. They don't got to go anywhere else. They've got uh, male cones and female cones on the same tree. Their reproductive cycles, I did not know about their reproductive cycles. They are so much slower than I realized. Hmm. So typically conifers work on a one, two, or three year reproductive cycle. So for a one year, they'll release the pollen and it it's not until three to four months after it has been pollinated that it will actually be fertilized. Huh, huh. So it holds on to it for a while. That's the short one. Sometimes it can take upwards of a year from when it is pollinated to when it is actually fertilized. So it's just holding on to that pollen? Basically. And then, and then, once it is actually fertilized, depending on, again, the length of the reproductive cycle, it might take more than a year, more than two years to grow a, a fully developed cone with seeds inside. Wow. Yeah. No, they're, they, they grow very, very slowly. Like... Gymnosperms are an absolute, you know, conifers specifically, but gymnosperms in general, they are in no rush. Is is that because like conifers so often are in very cold, very harsh places? Is, it's the opposite. That's why they're there. Okay, the opposite. That's why they can survive there. Exactly. Because mm. uh, we'll get we'll get to that a little bit later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, like the, the, this is the tortoise <laughs> sort of life uh, life strategy, like. Slow and steady. We'll get there eventually. No need to rush. Cool. Yeah. So one of the cool things about uh, conifers is they tend to have really distinct pollen. Uh, they tend to have saccate pollen, which means that it has balloons. And it's so easy <laughs> to identify uh, like pine pollen. So within conifers, you have 
broadly speaking, two ways of distributing your seeds. You have the things like the pines and Aracaria, where basically one day the cones open up and they drop the seeds. Or maybe it's fire that causes them to drop the seeds, something like that. But the woody cone opens up, the seeds fall out. Sometimes animals will help, but by and large, this is a win situation. And then you have the other types of conifers that are doing their best to pretend that they're angiosperms and will have these false fruit situations. So podocarps, cephalotaxaceae, taxaceae, juniperus, they have these scales. So the cones are scales, the woody cones are scales, but sometimes the scales can be uh, fleshy and basically be tasty to some animals. So yeah, like taxis, they have these beautiful red berries, so toxic to mammals <laughs> but but birds birds can disperse them even it's not a fruit because it doesn't form from the same part that forms the outside of a fruit but it is acting in much the same way and finally the weirdest thing i learned i say weird that is a judgment call on my part and i apologize uniquest things <laughs> i found is many conifers have polyembryony they can have multiple embryos in a single seed. Whoa. Wow. We just talked about <laughs> yeah. that. That term came up mm-hmm. in episode 153 because armadillos do yes. that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So these trees can have twins. Yeah. So they can have identical twins. Yes. Much like an armadillo, their babies are also grown in an armored scales enclosure and yes. lots of babies grown from one embryo. Yeah, and they have scales. Yep. They, they, yeah, so the same thing. Same All right, thing. armadillos so, are not good in the cold. No, as we learned, that's true. That's, that's, that's how that's, they. That's niche partition. That's yes, true. that's yes. how they avoid competition. <laughs> uh, they are <laughs> the rare conifers that can't survive. Yes. There are some, so you know what? It works out. Works out. But yes, <laughs> armadillos basically trees. Yes, that's what I got out of this. Yeah, uh, so that's conifers, and it, it uh, not in a nutshell because nuts are in fact fruits. <laughs> not in a shell at all. Not in a shell at all. In a cone. Conifers. That's in a conifers. Pine cone. Conifers exposed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so that w- so we spent the most time with conifers. We're gonna go a little bit speedier through the next groups because there's not as many of them. <laughs> uh, cycads are the next biggest group. There's two or three families, about eleven genera, and roughly three hundred and thirty-eight living species. So about a- half of the diversity that we have in conifers. They are limited, though, to the tropics and the subtropics. These are much more hot weather sort of plants. Again, like I had said at the beginning, they can be confused with uh, ferns or palms because of their shape. So it's very interesting the way that the different groups of cycads are spread out. They don't really overlap with each other very much. You tend to you tend to really only have one kind of cycad in an area. So cycadaceae, specifically cycus, you tend to find in Southeast Asia, Oceania, and East Africa. And then depending on how you split it, there may be one, there may be two other families, but the rest of them tend to be found in... South Africa and Australia, Africa, Australia, North and South America. 
and the single epiphyte is found in Panama. It is in the genus Samia. Uh, what's an epiphyte? An epiphyte is a plant that lives on other plants. Epi on top of fight plants. There we go. You mentioned the term before and I knew we were going to come back around to it. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yes, because yes. I didn't know what an epiphyte yeah, was. I got you. When you mentioned bromeliads, I thought... That's what it might have been, but I wasn't sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I will define my terms. But yeah, the name of it is uh, Zamia pseudoparasitica, which again, uh, great name. Nice. Not actually a parasite. It's just sitting on the other planet. <laughs> <laughs> just hitching a ride. Not parasitizing you. Just riding. Just sitting here. Just sit here. Just commensal. Just commensal. <laughs> uh, so they don't make true wood. So true wood requires secondary growth. So they don't have that secondary growth. Instead, like I mentioned, uh, the outside of the trunk has this kind of scaly appearance but uh, because of the, the persistent leaf bases of the fronds. So basically... They will fall off and they will leave behind a scar as it continues to grow up and up and up. These are so long lived. They're so slow growing. There was one in Waco that I genuinely thought was a pine tree. Excuse me, a palm tree. I genuinely thought it was a palm tree because it was as tall as a house. And normally when you see cycads, they're like knee high. Yep. So this was an old cycad uh, or well yeah who knows how long i've been living there but it was an old cycad they tend to have so unlike you know conifers that have you know the scales or so the scaly leaves needly leaves the leaves of cycads are pinnate to bipinnate so they look much more like a fern frond so a pinnate leaf means that it looks like a uh, it looks like a feather so you have a strong basically mid-vein, and then you have little leaflets coming off all of the sides. Bipinnate means that you have a strong mid-vein, and then another strong mid-vein coming off, and then little leaflets coming off of that. Like a feather. Like a feather, exactly. This is unique to cycads. You don't really see that in any other kind of conifer. They also have, and this is one of my favorite terms in botany, Circinate vernation. <laughs> and what that means is they form fiddleheads. They will unroll. Unf- oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, th- like so, a so, fern. So, yes. Mm-hmm. They- yeah, yeah, yeah. Circinate vernation. I was going to ask. I was going to say, say it again. Circinate <laughs> vernation. Vernation. Wow. Sinusoidal dorsal sacral cell. Yeah, 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 yeah. Circinate vernation is one of my favorite things to talk about. So, I'm glad. I was so excited when I saw that. Uh, cycads often have cyanobacteria associated with their roots. Their pollen cones are in the center of the leaves, right? So you can't, you tend to not be able to see them unless you're above them because they got a crown of leaves coming out and uh, in hiding them. Uniquely, there's only two, two of the four uh, types of, uh, excuse me, gymnosperms have this. They have flagellated, free swimming Male gametes, spermatozoids. Yes. They have swimmers, right? <laughs> and this this is this is uh, not common <laughs> at all in vascular plants. But we've got it in the cycads and one other group. Weird. That's that's fun because that's a thing we associate very strongly with animals. Yes. yes. That the male gametes move themselves. They've got a little tail and they yep. swim towards their destination, mm-hmm. but not. In plants. Not yeah. a thing we think of often in plants. We don't think of plants moving. Yeah. Right? So, like, the fact that, like, yes, 
It's swimming. That's a swimming plant. It's a swimming plant. Who knew? All right, next group. Ginkgo. As I mentioned, Ginkgo by Loba. It is the only one of its group left. So it is the only living species, as we mentioned before. They are trees with these beautiful, broad, fan-shaped leaves, often uh, bifurcated, divided in two with the two lobes. That's how they get their name. They are endemic to central China. So they only grow wild. Wild. They've been cultivated for a very long time in uh, central China. It has an edible seed. Looks like a fruit. Totally a liar. False fruit. They are dioecious, which is why you have that, that, that fun fact of the female trees smell awful because they make the seeds smell. To me, I think it smells like dog vomit. <laughs> but the, so historically, the preference has been to plant male trees in cities. But the thing is... If you have a bunch of male f- trees and no females, they'll spontaneously become female trees. Yeah, that makes because sense. Because they need to reproduce. Yep. It's like dinosaurs. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> See what you did there. So they're really, they're really tough trees. So that's why they are often uh, planted on streets. They can grow to about 30 meters tall. They are very resistant to pollution and to insects. So... This is the kind of thing you want to you want to plant uh, in your city. They are one of the interesting things about them. They're really recognizable by their shoot dimorphism. So they'll have long shoots and short shoots, and that's not really something we see in modern trees today. They do have a uh, relationship with mycorrhiza, which is fun. Love seeing that. Love having a relationship well, with fungi. Root fungus. Yeah. Uh, mycorrhizae. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they've got some fungal friends that are, you know, helping them survive. This, though, there was a report in 2002. There was a report of green algae living as intracellular endophytes within the leaves of ginkgo. Whoa. Whoa like a coral? Yes. Like algae living in the cells? Yes. Like a coral. Weird. Very weird. Yeah, I only saw the one, the one, the report on it, and it's from you know twenty years ago. But like that, wild. Why aren't we talking Whoa. about this more? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Jimmy Sperm's doing weird stuff. And then finally, you know who else has uh, swimming male gametes? It's ginkgo. <laughs> ginkgo is the other one, which feels really appropriate, right? Like ginkgo's kind of a a, a strange tree, so the fact yes. that like mm-hmm. it's got that going for it. That makes perfect sense to me. And then finally, on to our last group, the weirdest, the smallest, the neophytes. There are three families. There are three genera. Then there's like a hundred species. <laughs> so they're, they're doing all right for themselves. So what a neophyte is, is highly debated. We cannot agree. Some consider them closer to angiosperms. Some consider them nested uh, within conifers. So, yep, they're plants. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so they're all dioecious. So like I said, three groups. Needham, which is what gives the group its name, is found in northern South America, West Africa, India, Southeast Asia, and Indonesia. Okay. Okay. So an interesting little distribution you got there. They are exclusively lianas, so only vines, and they have 
vessel elements in their xylem, like we saw in angiosperms. Ah, that's the interconnected plumbing. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. They also have broad leaves with pinnate reticulate venation, which looks superficially like an angiosperm. Okay. So like, all right, Needham. I see what you're doing there. Doing their best angiosperm. Basically. Yeah. Basically, yeah. No, like, you look at pictures of Needham, especially because it has, like, kind of fleshy looking cones, too. I would easily be fooled. (laughs) Like, I would be easily fooled by Needham. Interesting. Then there's ephedra. You may have heard of ephedra. Sounds familiar, but I don't know. Because you may have heard of it because it's caffeinated. (laughs) Like, it's in energy drinks. Oh. <laughs> yes. So, ephedra, also known as Mormon tea, <laughs> is found in arid regions of North and South America, North Africa, and Eurasia. So, basically, like, the like the uh, U.S. Southwest is full of ephedra. The way that the textbook I was looking through, my paleobotany textbook, the the textbook described it was profusely branched shrub. In parentheses, I describe it as it looks like a bunch of sticks. (laughs) Like every time I've ever seen a picture of ephedra or a fossil that is purportedly of ephedra, it's like that is a stick. (laughs) Sometimes they could get uh, up to be the size of a small tree. The leaves... They range from small scales, so basically you're not going to notice it unless you're very close to the plant, to larger needles up to three centimeters. So, like, that's still not a particularly big leaf. So, yeah, ephedra. Their pollen, though, the pollen of ephedra that lives in, like, the the American Southwest has been found in pollen traps in the Great Lakes. Huh. It crosses a continent. (laughs) Like, when we say this stuff is wind-dispersed... (laughs) <laughs> we aren't kidding. <laughs> no yeah. That means that like you could be pollinating uh, friends of yours yeah. states away. Yes. 2,000 miles away. Yeah. That's pretty cool. They're very efficient. <laughs> very effective. And then finally, my favorite, Wolwichia mirabilis. There's only one. It is found in the Namib Desert, so in Nib- Namibia and Angola. I love this thing. It is a short cone-shaped accessor stalk, so it's not very tall. And like I said before, it's got these two strap-like leaves that will split and look like way more leaves. And I had to look up how this grows because I was like, there's no way this is growing from the top. It has to be growing from the bottom. Yes, in fact, it is. It is growing from the bottom. That's the only way it can split like that. And yeah, they're big too. Like they can they can make a pretty hefty-sized nest. Like it'd be a, it'd be a nice medium dog bed sized nest like i think my dog would be very comfortable well i mean she wouldn't because it's not a comfy plant but in theory yeah so in addition in addition ephedra and needham so needham the one who's already doing its angiosperm impression right ephedra and needham have a form of double fertilization which is similar to what's going on in angiosperms it's not the same because the double fertilization in angiosperms is what actually forms the fruit. But, again, they're trying. They are doing their best to uh, pretend to be angiosperms. So, yes, wrapping all that up, that, my friends, those are the gymnosperms. What's so interesting to me about that big list is how many of those plants I've heard of. Mm Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the, like I've heard of cycads, I've heard of ginkgo, I've heard of all the big, the famous conifers that we discussed. 
gymnosperms, despite being sort of in the shadow of angiosperms, these are a lot of well-known plants. Yes. And that, yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at with like, they, they are not the more common, but they are not uncommon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They are still very, you know, very diverse, very widespread and even dominating certain areas. So like, they they're they are still making their presence known. Yes, which is cool. And then there's neophytes. Yes, <laughs> which are bizarre. Yes, that's that's a fact. So uh, you have taken us through uh, the modern diversity and distributions of gymnosperms, which is great uh, because we always love learning about plants and being told how to organize plants uh, in our brains, which otherwise we don't know how to do. Now, since as always we are a paleontology podcast. Let's head to the past. Uh, for the rest of the episode, we'll talk more about the ancient history of the group. Let's jump all the way to the start. If you could, before we get into the further details, what do we know about the origin? So back in episode 57, we talked with you about the evolution of angiosperms, and we talked about how angiosperms showed up in the Cretaceous a hundred million years ago, perhaps a bit before that. What about gymnosperms? What do we know about the origins of this group of plants? Okay, so even before I talk to you about the origin of gymnosperms, I'm going to throw a curveball. Have you heard of the pro-gymnosperms? I have heard of the pro-gymnosperms. Yes. Yeah, so we have... but I feel like it, I'm having to reach all the way back to intro biology <laughs> or botany. The pro-gymnosperms were the gymnosperms that were so good at it that they made a career. Okay, okay, yeah, 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 and that's, yeah. <laughs> I should have known better. So, so now you remember from biology class. That's, those are the ones. So the ones with the advertising deals. Yep, yep, yep. Well, this makes sense because yep. this is what I wrote. Can't ignore progymnosperms. That is what I wrote. Right. Yes. <laughs> so progymnosperms are the ancestor of the gymnosperms. So that's what that's actually what the pro means. Yes. <laughs> uh, so they are woody plants. They are vascular plants. They are woody plants. So they have that secondary growth, but they are spore bearing, not seed bearing. And so that's what differ uh, differentiates the progymnosperms from the gymnosperms. And to put that in context, spore bearing is something that we see in the earliest, more basal groups of plants. Like a lot of our non-vascular plants mm -hmm. are spore bearing plants. Yep. Whereas our more common things like our angiosperms and our gymnosperms make seeds. Yes. So if, if you want to think of it, progymnosperms would fit in a Venn diagram between ferns and gymnosperms. So ferns are vascular, but they're not woody, and they're spore-bearing. Whereas gymnosperms are vascular, woody, and seed-bearing. And so the progymnosperms are kind of in between. Uh, so right. they're around from the Middle Devonian to the End Permian. So obviously they've got a little bit of overlap, but Middle Devonian to End Permian is where we have the progymnosperms. They don't make it into the Mesozoic. So we're talking around 350 to around 250 million years old, which is way older than the number I just cited for the earliest flowering plants. Yes. Yes. So those are the progymnosperms. That is who the gymnosperms come from. Gymnosperms originate in the Carboniferous. When exactly? Obviously, we debate this. A lot of the concrete fossil evidence is from uh, later on in the Carboniferous, 
There's molecular evidence showing that it happened, obviously had to happen earlier in the Carboniferous. The split with the last common ancestor with angiosperms is sometime in the uh, early Carboniferous. By the time we get towards the end of the Carboniferous, gymnosperms are widespread and they are taking over <laughs> the lycopsids and the coal swamps and in the, in the forests. All right. So we have gymnosperms like gymnosperm gymnosperms mm -hmm. by around 300 million years ago. So the cool thing is the radiation of gymnosperms is t possibly linked. We're testing it. Possibly linked to a whole genome duplication event that happened about 319 million years ago. Oh, cool. Yes. Gotcha. We talked about this a bit in the genetics episode. Yes. 147, the idea of every now and then, plants especially, <laughs> yes. like to just make a entire second copy of their whole genome and keep it. Yes. So like not just doubling a gene or a part of your DNA, all of your DNA doubled. Yep. Double the fun. And that the the nice thing about that is that it leads it can lead to a little bit more flexibility in, in your genetic options. And so yeah, that that is possibly related to the ability of gymnosperms to become very widespread uh, during this time. So what do the earliest gymnosperm fossils look like? Conifers. Great. Hey, I'll give you more. I'll give you more. I'll give you more. Okay. Christmas came early. And break. <laughs> Christmas came. It, this guy. <laughs> it, it is interesting, though, if when you look at a lot of these, they do look like when you see a lot of these like really early gymnosperms, they look really modern, uh, which is kind of surprising. And also, this kind of makes sense. A lot of the pro gymnosperms actually looked a lot like conifers, too. Right. That's what I was going to ask yeah. is... Does, does the pro-gymnosperms kind of cover that yes. transitional period, mm -hmm. we would expect? Yes. And by the time they give rise to gymnosperms, they basically just look like conifers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the, some of the oldest confirmed fossils of gymnosperms from the Pennsylvanian of Yorkshire in the UK, Swillingtonia denticulata. Swillingtonia. That is a ridiculous genus name, and I love it so much. That's that's awesome. It, <laughs> Fun one. It, that is a very British sounding it, it genus name. It truly is. When I saw the picture, I knew what I thought it looked like. And then like a sentence later, I read what the authors thought it looked like. And it was the same thing. So that's always a good sign. Nice. <laughs> so I thought it looked like Aracaria, specifically the Norfolk Island pine. And you may have seen these. They're really common in like malls and airports. There's a huge one in the Knoxville airport. Fun fact. Huh. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to go check it out. Yeah. It's, yeah, when you when you have arrived and you are leaving, like, there are all of these, all these huge Norfolk Island pine. They'll sell them in, like, grocery stores as, like, miniature Christmas trees. Do not buy them. They are the crankiest plants I've ever tried, <laughs> ever tried to take care of. I digress. But Norfolk Island pine is not a pine. It's an aracaria. But yes, like, this fossil looks just like that. It's got kind of huh. this like bristly, kind of spirally arranged, uh, really short little needles. And then in addition, so kind of the next group of gymnosperms to arise, the cycads, also coming around in the Pennsylvanian, they look just like modern cycads. <laughs> like, Weird. Yeah, no, like 
this was the thing that was kind of wild about looking into the fossil record of gymnosperms. Like gymnosperms have always looked like gymnosperms. Hmm. So if we go back again, 300 million years ago to the end of the Carboniferous, not only do we have gymnosperms, like nicely represented gymnosperms and conifers, but it would look like modern gymnosperms. Yeah. We'd see it and go, that's a cycad. It'd feel familiar. Yeah. yeah. Which, yeah. which is weird because like today those can often look odd because they're not angiosperms and we're so used to flat leafed mm-hmm. angiosperms. Because yeah, I, I remember as a kid, I used to be so confused by just pine needles. Like, yes. How are those doing the job of a leaf? Right. How are these little thin, wispy leaves actually capturing any sunlight? But they evidently work. Mm-hmm. So it it's both not surprising to me that these, you know, quote unquote, weird leaves <laughs> are what the early ones look like. But it's super weird that they maintain that the, evidently they work and they work well. They've worked for 300 million years. Yeah. It's not wow. broke. It's not broke. Don't fix yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> So it sounds like gymnosperms are one of those groups that we've discussed this every now and then where we talk about a group where you could go way back in time and go to the Carboniferous and look around and be like, wow, there's no, there's nothing fuzzy. There's nothing that's really very reptilian. There's no birds. The only thing in the air are insects and some of them are preposterously large, but that tree looks like home. Yep. Yes. (laughs) That looks perfectly normal to me. We've got gymnosperms. I guess if we want to go through the transition, the sort of early, early stages, we'll just have to do an episode about pro-gymnosperms. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving on from the origins in the earliest stages, let us prepare to move through time and examine some more of the fossil record of the gymnosperms. But first, let's take a break. We've talked a bunch about plants. Uh, after the break, we'll be back to talk more about the ancient history of gymnosperms. I'll be back. Allie will be back. Will, we'll see. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and we hope you'll be back. Stay tuned. Yeah. So, Allie, let's talk about the fossil record of gymnosperms, starting with the question, what do gymnosperm fossils tend to look like? Gymnosperms? One would imagine. (laughs) There are many different parts of a plant that can become fossilized. You get wood, you got your seeds, you got your pollen, you got your leaves. Which one do we see with gymnosperms? Which ones are common? Uh, Tell me about the fossils. I wrote down, and I quote, Pollen, exclamation point. Cones, exclamation point. Leaves, exclamation point. Wood, exclamation point. Everything must go. Everything. Well, that's the really nice thing about gymnosperms, is they are mostly hard parts. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that. Yeah. That's true. Like, They're tough plants, they literally. They truly are. Because, like, if you think about it, the, like, fruits and flowers of angiosperms are ephemeral and squishy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> very delicate yes and we don't really have that uh in gymnosperms and the other thing too i talked to you about how long it takes to make a cone you have so much time for that to get preserved yeah years (laughs) as opposed to like fruits and flowers that are like blink and you miss it well and also in comparison you were mentioning that gymnosperms tend to be perennial. Yeah. Uh, whereas a lot of other plants are annual, which means they only basically exist for a year. Mm-hmm. 
And that means that they have a very limited amount of time to be caught in the fossil record. Yes. Where a tree that exists for decades and centuries <laughs> has a lot of opportunity to end up as all or part of it becoming a fossil. See, now, like, with this, like, them having the, the long-lasting fossil record and comparing them to tortoises in the first part, <laughs> I'm just picturing gymnosperms watching angiosperms with, like, this is a phase. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> Definitely. We'll just wait it out. You know, they, they live fast, they die young. It's just, they're not going to last. Well, it's the same thing that reptiles are watching mammals. <laughs> yeah, right. mm-hmm. Well, and I love the image that it's like mammals are sitting there and then off in the distance, reptiles are just shaking their head. And then off in the distance, there's insects who are just shaking their little heads. And we've got the same thing with plants. Exactly. No, exactly. So honestly, gymnosperm fossils are super common. We have a lo- we have a lot of them uh, in a lot of different forms. So we have some preserved in like coal balls. Don't ask me to coal ball is. I can't tell you. We don't actually know how they form. But all of, all of coal. They're they're little. They're usually for low level but, players. And they worship dragons. Yes. And they hang out in little dungeons mm-hmm. and they collect yeah, trinkets. Yep. Yeah. Um, we got it. Conifers. Bright light right. sensitivity. Yeah. <laughs> I, it took me longer than I care to admit to realize the reference that you were making. Um, (laughs) Cobal is basically a ball of plant bits that come from coal forests. So they're carboniferous. And the way that we study them is with acetate peels. So basically you'll just like shave it down and peel off a layer so you can look at it through the microscope. And it's, it's, it's really neat. And you begin to see more and more gymnosperms showing up towards the end of the Carboniferous. All right. So, like, in terms of gymnosperms, we're doing great, with one exception. If I told you one of the four groups of gymnosperms had a not-so-good fossil record, who do you think it is? It's got to be the neophytes. Yeah. yeah. The oh. one I haven't heard of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you would be correct. <laughs> yeah, they do not have a very good fossil record, especially compared to the other groups of gymnosperms. And it was originally thought that it was because they lived in arid environments like they do today. Because mm. if they're living in these arid environments... That's not really conducive to, like, high levels of preservation. May or may not be as true as we once thought it was. And in addition to that, some fossils that were originally identified as needum were, in fact, angiosperms. Yeah. That's uh-huh. what I was expecting. Yeah. That's how they get you. That, that is. That is. They've been imposters for millions of years. Exactly. Well, it makes sense if we were already struggling as to where to pl- place them. Yeah. In relation to gymnosperms and angiosperms. Exactly. So in in terms of like what kind of fossils do we have of gymnosperms? Oh my goodness. They are common. They are abundant. What do you want? We got it. Like it it is genuinely (laughs) impressive. The fossil record of gymnosperms. Like I, as a plant person, I am not used to saying that. Like we have an extensive fossil record. Like we are pretty confident we know what was going on and like that's that's exciting for me this is another similarity they have with armadillos yes Uh, surprisingly good fossil record because of all those those hard parts Mm -hmm. uh something they don't have in common with armadillos that i was going to mention the one fossil site in the world that i am very familiar with the plants of that fossil site Uh the gray fossil site Mm -hmm. yes one of our top three 
Plants is a conifer. Yeah. As is often cited, which I think is all based on pollen records. Yes. Uh, generally. Oak hickory pine. Yeah. And and that makes sense. That's a modern kind of assemblage that way you would that you would see. And in fact, down in Will's neck of the woods, you tend to have these pine savanna pine and oak savannas. Like you get a whole lot of them down there. Like loblolly yes. pine, just a good name in general. Longleaf pine, yep. that sort of stuff. But yeah, no, like in terms of the terms of like what do we get from gymnosperms? What do you want? Like that's that's <laughs> that's what you get. Do do we get fossilized needles? Not three dimensionally, but like a whole load of compressions. Okay, that makes sense. Because like, we get we get that for fern leaves, we get that for angiosperm. Exactly. Leaves. Yeah. Uh, but if you want three dimensional fossils, like gymnosperms have got that on lock. So like you'll have silicified trunks, and I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit more uh, in uh, a little bit later on. But you'll get three dimensional silicified soli- trunks. There were so many pictures in this textbook. There were so many pictures of three-dimensionally preserved cones. A lot of silicified aracaria cones. I've actually like seen these in rock shops. They're beautiful. I love them. <laughs> but like Larix and um, like Pinus. So just like Larch and Pine, like three-dimensionally preserved cones. So we don't have to imagine what it looked like. Like I could hold it up and show it to you. It's that's so cool. Amazing. That's awesome. Very cool. Yeah, I I like plants that that take or fossils in general. I like fossils that take zero imagination. Like I know what it looks <laughs> yep. like because I'm looking at it. Yeah, like armadillos. Yes. Yeah. So we have gymnosperms uh, like we know them by 300 million years ago or so, mm-hmm. and then there is this long period of time where it seems to me before flowering plants get in on the game. That gymnosperms are just kind of the plants. Yes. They they, they have the run of the place. There is nothing else in the world uh, plant-wise that is significantly getting in the way of gymnosperms just kind of doing whatever they want. Mm-hmm. With this excellent fossil record, what do we know about that time period? Sort of Paleozoic into the Mesozoic. What were gymnosperms up to for that span of ancient time? So, so the, the cool thing about plants is... Okay. It has been a bit of contention as to whether plants have ever experienced a mass extinction. All right. right. Yes, yes, yes. Some people feel either way in this argument. I think they have. Uh, but generally speaking, <laughs> when you look at like of plant groups that are still around today, right? When you look at like how many of their relatives, like these big groups have gone extinct. It's not a lot. I could literally count them on one hand. <laughs> Wow. Like they're doing really well for themselves. So I'm going to talk a little bit briefly. I'm going to kind of tell you what was going on within the plant groups. And then I will take you through time. Okay. 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 So when we talk about extinct uh, gymnosperms, there are a a couple of groups that are really common uh, to come up. The Cordatales is one of them. So Cordatales, possibly, probably... Most closely related to conifers. So they lived in the Paleozoic. So they're around from the Mississippian into the end of the Permian. So again, 350, 300 to about 250 million years ago. Exactly. So basically, end of the Paleozoic, we've got the Cordatales. They lived in what is now Central Europe, North America, uh, and China. 
basically Eurasia into North America. I've seen it described as uh, Euro-America, the mm-hmm. Euro-American floral community. So they primarily were living in these really lowland kind of like peat mires, living in these like boggy, swampy environments. And they tended to live in like single species stands. It would be all one kind of tree and that would be it. Um, you would also sometimes find them a little bit more upland in poorly to well-drained soils. In the drier sites, they would be mixed in with these more diverse communities, but they were a fire hazard. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I find very funny. So they look like you would expect something closely related to conifers to look. So that monopodial trunk, single trunk, growing from the top, branches coming off the sides. So they had these strap uh, shaped leaves, so much thicker, more similar to what you would expect from a broadleaf uh, a tree. They were the largest trees in the tropics during the Pennsylvanian. Cool. Yeah. Nice. So they they were a big they were a big deal. Mostly they were trees. You would have some shrubs. Some of the shrubbier looking things look superficially like mangroves we know now they weren't living like mangroves but they have the aerial stilt roots like mangroves yeah so and that's because of occasional flooding not because they were perpetually submerged like mangroves yeah so still still for managing the water yeah just not permanently like a mangrove just seasonally or 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 somewhat seasonally yeah regularly uh, at the very least cool yeah cordatales they're neat. They didn't last very long, though. Only Paleozoic. All right. Uh, within the conifers, we know what this one is, <laughs> are the Voltsiales. Uh, so this is another order of conifers. They lived, again, only the Paleozoic. The Pennsylvanian to the end Permian. So not quite as long uh, as we had the Cordatales. They have a very similar sort of distribution. You're American. They don't make it all the way into China. But they look just like a Norfolk Island pine. That's why I'm bringing it up. It looks just like Aracaria. And it's wild to see it because genuinely it looks like if you painted up an Aracaria excelsa and put it on a, press it on a piece of paper, <laughs> it looks like the same sort of compression fossils you're getting. Huh. Wow. Is that just convergent? I guess it's a good shape if you're a conifer. It's it, huh. it's really impressive to me how many conifers have kind of converged on this aracaria sort of shape. Hmm. I don't know why, but it was something that, that I kept, like, when I would look at the fossils, I would have to double check, like, what section of the book am I in? <laughs> like, are these all aracaria? <laughs> no, they're not. They're a whole bunch of different things. Um, Weird. Wow. Just over and over again, the yeah. tree is developing that shape. This is this is peak conifer. <laughs> you yes. may not like it. Aracaria. But- <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Then we get to the only group of conifers. I think it's the only group of gymnosperms. It's definitely the only group of conifers that didn't make it through the KPG. They did not make it past the the end Cretaceous extinction. Yes. So they were around through the entirety of the Mesozoic from the early Triassic and then did not make it through the end Cretaceous. So basically the same run as... The non-bird dinosaurs. Exactly, exactly. Showed up in the Triassic, gone at the end of the Cretaceous. Exactly. So these are conifers, non-bird conifers. (laughs) Uh, Non-avian conifers. Non-armadillo conifers. (laughs) Yes, exactly. 
Uh, so they're known from North and South America and Eurasia. So we're not seeing them in Africa or Australia. Um, and they were, they were conifers, right? They could be cool. meters tall trees. They could be uh, shrubs, but some of them were herbaceous. Whoa. And okay. uh, which group did you say this is? This, oh, thank you. I didn't say the name because I was avoiding saying okay. it. Thank you for asking. Oh, so I this see. is the, because uh, I had to work myself up because I've never heard it said out loud, which means you won't know if I say it wrong. So I should just say it. So this <laughs> is the Chirolepidaceae. So the Chirolepidaceae is a family of conifers the only group that i know of that did not make it through the end cretaceous i specifically remember this being a question on an exam when i took paleobotany <laughs> wow and they included herbaceous yes. species yes they included herbaceous non-woody species yeah. yes oh huh. well, that's weeds. not what a conifer does right there were weeds weeds weed conifers <laughs> weed conifers that's, exactly that's so we well now see now i'm picturing because you said they were the only one that didn't make it through the in kpg it's like well all, all other groups of life are like having to mourn massive portions of their diversity <laughs> right <laughs> gymnosperms are like oh yeah and we lost the weeds we lost herb <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> didn't make it eh, you know oh, i mean i i guess that i guess that's bad this was great yeah <laughs> really <laughs> far has never been clearer you can't say you can't say that you can't no, <laughs> too soon no. you can't man, come too on soon. have some tact all right so i'll give you one guess what, what do you think? told them they should toughen up. <laughs> what do you What do you think they looked like? Who do you think they resembled? Arakari. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they look herbaceous Arakari. Basically, so they look somewhere between like um, your yews and your cedars, but also like some more closely resembled Arakari, which I just find fascinating. That like this is peak <laughs> gymnosperm Arakari now. Uh, Arakari, what was the common name again for Arakaria? Norfolk Northern... Island Pine. Norfolk Island Pine. And Arakaria is A-U-R-A-C-A-R-I-A. Okay, hold on. A-R-A-U-C-A-R-I-A. There we go. I moved the U. I say that because at this point we've said this word so many times that I know we have listeners who are going to want to Google it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Norfolk Island Pine, Aracaria. Another uh, thing to look up, another type of Aracaria, and I know there's one on ETSU's campus because I've seen it, is the monkey puzzle tree. <gasps> that's that's why I know this word. Yep. Because I remember when I was in college, uh, I think it was Peter Wilf yep. who was ranting about how common it was for paleo artists to put monkey puzzle trees yep in the backgrounds of dinosaur pictures because on the presumption that they were these ancient trees. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's, right that's group, what I know it. wrong type. <laughs> if you just, right. yeah, exactly. if you did Aracaria excelsa, if you made it look like a Norfolk Island pine, no one would know the difference. <laughs> well, cause they'd go, what is that an Aracaria? And you'd go, oh, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> it's some kind of plan. Might as well anybody. be. <laughs> exactly. So they lived in, Either xeric, hypersaline environments, so like really dry, really salty kind of environments, uh, full of all sorts of precipitates, like not a great place to live if you're a plant. Also not a great place to live if you're an animal. Is that what it takes to force a conifer (laughs) to become herbaceous? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe. Like, it's got to be extreme. Or, and so when they lived in these... Xeric environments, they tended to be monodominant, meaning that you tended to have only one species going on there. Okay. Or they would live in fluvial environments. 
which is rivers and streams rivers and streams and they would live with a bunch of their friends All right. <laughs> gathering place yeah, yeah yeah exactly so this group is best known by its pollen like we have a lot of macro fossils mega fossils of it but it is so recognizable by its pollen type so if you've ever if i realize now what i'm about to say is probably too niche <laughs> For most people. <laughs> but if you're familiar with the pollen morphotype of Classopolis, that is this family. And it is very distinct. It is very unique. And if you see it, you immediately know it's this type of conifer. It is It is a specific shape of pollen that you see that shape, you know which trees you're looking at. That's this group. Exactly. Gotcha. And then finally, the weirdos. The most <laughs> contentious group. In gymnosperms. Yeah, I feel like that's saying a lot. <laughs> the Benetitales. I've heard of these. Uh, I have heard this name. Uh-huh. I don't know why, but <laughs> I have. <laughs> this is what I'm saying, right? This is the contentious group. This is the drama of gymnosperms, okay? This is clearly why you've heard of it. <laughs> yeah, even I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Even we've heard of these. Exactly. Okay, so Benetitales. Morphologically look very similar to cycads. Okay. So they are often grouped either within cycads, close to cycads. Like if you're looking at, because uh, they're often preserved, again, like cycads, as these silicified trunks. Like you look at the, the trunk, you look at the leaves, they look like cycads. They even have, say it with me, Cercinate vernation. Cercinate vernation. I remember that. Cercinate vernation. <laughs> She blew up the citadel in the middle of the city and it was a whole, yes. whole thing at the end of that one season. Oh, exactly. Exactly. So they lived basically the same time period as that the family that I just talked about. So they lived from the Triassic to uh, through the Cretaceous and they had a basically global distribution. These things are everywhere. In fact, like a lot of time when people are talking about fossil cycads, like even including Fossil Cycad National Monument, they're not cycads. <laughs> They're Benetitales. <laughs> They're really, really common, especially in the Cretaceous and wow. in the Jurassic. Yeah. This this is why I've heard of them. Yes. Uh, incidentally, now that you say that, is cycads and Benetitales uh-huh. yes, often listed as plants that lived alongside the dinosaurs. Exactly. Yes, that is. That's indeed. Exactly. Yeah, that's where. That's why we both know, know. that word. Yeah. Oh, I know, I know why. Because when you try to figure out what sauropods were eating, everyone's like, uh, cycads and Benetitales? Yeah, right. How, how does this relate back to vertebrates so that All we right. can put it in context? Can you can you somehow relate these plants to T-Rex? Yep. So that I can better understand So we can it. write a news article about it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so the reason these are a contentious group is not because they morphologically look similar to cycads. Because, like, that's fine. No, it's because of their reproductive structures. They are unique. They are distinct. They are complicated. So they are way more complicated than the type of reproductive structures you've seen historically or even in modern cycads. That is why every so often we will renew the debate whether Benetitalians are uh, the originators or the ancestors, excuse me, of 
angiosperms. Because again, this is another thing I specifically remember was on an exam when I took paleobotany and it was comparing the parts of a strobilis or a cone of a cycad with a benetitalian and just looking at how much more complicated. And in fact, some of the early like morphological studies, morphological descriptions of benetitalians would use flower parts and called it like a floral diagram when they were talking about it. So incorrect. We don't think they're actually flowers. Maybe. But as of right now, <laughs> we don't think so. And so just briefly, what are some of the other the weirdos doing? So the early ginkgo fights. So not ginkgos, but ginkgo fights. So related to ginkgo. Ginkgo friends. Like particularly in the Permian. They don't really look like ginkgos. So I know everything looked, I know I said that everything basically looked exactly how you expected. I slightly lied to you because ginkgo fights don't look like ginkgos. Because <laughs> they are much narrower leaves. They're much strappier looking leaves. You, they're not nearly as broad and short as what we see today. But once we get into the Mesozoic, once we get into the Triassic, like you have things that have been assigned to ginkgo or ginkgoides, like... It basically, once you get in there, it's like, oh, yeah, that's a ginkgo. In the Triassic, the ginkgos decided they wanted to try, like, the kind of feathery leaves. But from then on, ginkgos be ginkgos. And once you get into the Cenozoic, like, you have biloba almost exclusively. And not not entirely, but, like, they're so ginkgo biloba shaped. <laughs> and then we get to wrap up that little journey and then kind of taking you step by step or the highlights through uh the paleozoic metazoic but we've got to wrap up with the natalians the weirdos we always got to know what they're doing i call them weirdos it is out of love they're just so <laughs> unlike all the other gymnosperms <laughs> so like i said they have a very sparse fossil record and it looks as though they might not have even arisen until the cretaceous it's unclear. Wow, so this we is the Nidophytes group. Yes. Nidophytes, Natalians. So the things that today are only Ephedra, Wilwichia, and Needham. Hmm. We don't have a very good fossil record for them. And so there are things that have been described as looking like them or maybe they're pollen uh, earlier. But we know they're around in the Cretaceous. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. The, the oldest mega fossil that we know of is from the Cretaceous of Virginia. So Druia uh, Potemicensis. Okay. So yes, it looks most similar to, I think it was either Needham or Wellwitchy. I don't think it was a Fedra, but I can't remember. Uh, looks like one of them. Excuse me, it wasn't Wellwitchia because the earliest ones that look like Wellwitchia are also from the earliest Cretaceous of Brazil. Okay. And I love it because the thing about plants is they got so many parts. And so you got to name all the different parts because unless they're together, you don't know they're the same thing. So you've got Wellwichia strobus for the cone and Wellwichia phyllum for the leaves. Right. I love it. I get it. I understand. <laughs> but it's kind of ridiculous. And when their powers combine. Right. Wellwichia. <laughs> yes, exactly. Ephedra as we know it. So that genus is actually probably middle late cenozoic so between 32 or 8 and 32 somewhere in there um so relatively recent fossils so i told you who was doing what but let's do quick tour what was going on in the paleozoic and the mesozoic all right so yeah we don't get gymnosperms until towards the end of the paleozoic so obviously 
I'm not going to talk about the first half of the Paleozoic. <laughs> but once we get into the Carboniferous, um, towards the end of the Carboniferous, conifers are spreading into the coal swamps. Before that, this is very important. Before that, they were hiding out in these more arid, more extreme regions. So the coal swamps are basically equatorial. It's a great place to be. The conifers are chilling in places that are cooler and drier. And this is why they are able to come in towards the end of the Carboniferous and start becoming a much bigger part of the flora because they are adapted to these more extreme environments that we definitely see once we're going into the Permian. Right, right. And we talked in episode 95 about there was a whole bunch of chaos around Mm -hmm. the end of the Carboniferous that it sounds like they may have been well adapted to weather. Exactly. They were able to just come in and take over. So so we have the conifers spreading into the coal swamps. The Cordatales were a conspicuous portion of the late late Paleozoic flora. Um, So once we're getting uh, particularly into the Permian, like Permian is really where we're seeing like gymnosperms are moving the balance in their uh, direction. The Carboniferous is where we we see this influx of gymnosperms. Pteridophytes, so uh, ferns and friends, are able to hold on to dominance. But basically, as we go into the Permian, we see even more and more dominance of gymnosperms, less and less of pteridophytes, ferns and friends. And then by the time we get into the Mesozoic, it is time for the gymnosperms so like the triassic jurassic oh man what a time <laughs> to so be a this is for our context we are in the mesozoic this is after the permian mass extinction this is the age of reptiles mm-hmm. right triassic is famous for early members of basically all of our familiar reptile groups jurassic is famous for being like dinosaur central mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and where we see mammals uh, uh happening where we see birds happening all of those early stages in those different lineages were happening in a world of gymnosperms. Yes, yes exactly. Like, if you were a gymnosperm and had access to a time machine, like Triassic, <laughs> Jurassic, this is the best time. Like, this is when this is when they peaked. So, like I said, ginkgos had their height in the, the Mesozoic. Uh, Triassic ginkgos went through a feathery phase and look really different than all the other ginkgo leaves you'll see. Cycads are everywhere. Cycads and vegetalians everywhere. Like that is why they're always included in like the lists of things that live with the dinosaurs because they were everywhere. And most modern uh, conifer families arise in the Triassic and Jurassic. Like that is when we're beginning to see the modern groups of conifers like... Triassic, uh, Triassic, Jurassic, what a time to be a conifer. What a time to be a gymnosperm, like, doing great. And then you got the Cretaceous. Right. And that's when everything changes. That is when (laughs) these little upstart angiosperms start asserting themselves. So the Natales, they arise, the Nidophytes arise in the late Cretaceous. So they are directly corresponding to the same time periods that we're really seeing this rise in angiosperms, which is really interesting because it is thought that maybe the um, ecological requirements for early Natalians might have been very similar to the, the ecological requirements of early angiosperms. 
that they are arising mm. at. Like they're really they're getting big at the same time. They're living in a lot of the same environments and angiosperms, like I'll mention in a little bit, got the edge. But interestingly, you know who had uh, animal pollination first? It was the neophytes. Oh, yes. Weird. So the plays in the trail. Yeah, the earliest record of animal pollination is scorpion flies with needum. Oh, cool. Yeah. Neat. Yes. So not even a group that you would expect to be doing like pollination. Right. <laughs> There's also evidence of pollination by calligrammatid lacewings. So they're an extinct mm-hmm. group, but they look like butterflies. Yes. They are a famously convergent group <laughs> yes. with butterflies. And yes. <laughs> so before be- butterflies came along and were besties with angiosperms, these lacewings were pollinating gymnosperms that's right we did a news about that i think yep yep about that very study that Uh showed that that same relationship existed between two different a a different pair yeah yes very cool yeah so you said that everything changed we talked about how triassic jurassic was like the world of gymnosperms and today it is not the world of gymnosperms in episode 57 we talked about how angiosperms flowering plants came to sort of take over basically every ecosystem (laughs) on land what happened? What? How did that go? Let's look at it this time from the perspective of the gymnosperms. <laughs> what was that experience like? Give us the Avatar The Last Airbender <laughs> intro. Uh, <laughs> everything changed. <laughs> Fire Nation attack. Exactly. So we've, no- we've talked about it a couple times on this episode. And you, you, you have made the joke that angiosperms are very live fast, die young. And gymnosperms mm-hmm. are just like, it's a phase. It's a phase. And that is good and bad, right? So the the reason that angiosperms have been able to dominate so much of the planet is because of this live fast, die young lifestyle. They they just live so much faster than gymnosperms do. I mean, when we were talking about the repro- the reproductive rate of conifers, it takes a minimum of a year for uh to to develop a fully developed cone, but it can take upwards of three. So gymnosperms are not in a position to compete on that kind of tempo with angiosperms. So they just kind of got pushed out. I mentioned at the beginning, or not not the beginning, I mentioned just previously that neophytes and early angiosperms probably had really similar ecological tolerances. And they were, so they were living in these more mesic environments. Uh, so really, you know, uh, very wet, you know, comfortable kind of environments as opposed to hot and arid ki- uh, kinds of environments. And that's going to lead to competition, like directly. You know, if you're trying to live in the same sort of environments and they do coexist today, but, you know, Needham is only a liana. <laughs> Like it, yeah, it, yeah. it is just one part of forests that are dominated by angiosperms. Um, it's interesting. So uh, Laosha chenii was originally identified as a monocot angiosperm. So it's from the early Cretaceous of China. It was originally identified as a monocot angiosperm, now thought to be a neophyte, most closely related to ephedra, hmm. which is interesting. But you got to keep in mind... When I was talking about the origins of conifers in particular, these plants were made for extreme environments. 
Like that is their bread and butter. That is what they are built for. They have these slow metabolisms, these slow life cycles. They can, which means that they are far more efficient than angiosperms are in a lot of ways. They also, because they're evergreen, they are able to just keep on trucking. And even if it's a little bit of photosynthesis, they're able to do it all year long. So basically what ended up happening is that the angiosperms took over the best environments, the choice environments, <laughs> right? So like if you think about the tropics, that is predominantly angiosperms. And when you get into these more marginal sort of environments, when you start thinking about these really arid environments, these really cold environments, these just weird, difficult environments, that's where you see gymnosperms. That's where, you know, if you think about the tundra, the tiger, these types of environments that are dominated basically exclusively by gymnosperms. If you think about in mountains, the tree line, like that, that point where you get to, there are no more gymnosperms and it's only, or excuse me, there's no more angiosperms. It's only gymnosperms the rest of the way up. Like they're just built different. Like they are yeah. so <laughs> tough. And so they are able to kind of just claw on to any space available and then they will just wait you out. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it makes sense that in situations where things are more, you know, where there's more resources, water, you know, heat, sunlight, where the resources are plentiful, that angiosperms will win out on the numbers game because they're making babies faster mm -hmm. and reproducing more abundantly. Mm -hmm. So they're just going to numbers game it. You know, they're just going to push everyone else out by ha having more of them within a year than the gymnosperms can do. Yeah. You're also not wasting all that energy growing wood and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Tons of herbaceous <laughs> Yes. Exactly. But then... A numbers game wouldn't work in a tundra type situation or, or right. a harsh situation because you're going to use up your resource. Like you will kill yourself off mm -hmm. trying to do that. So the conifers are perfectly happy there. So gymnosperms, it, it sounds like, were basically that's what plants are if you're not a fern or mm -hmm. a moss or something. Yeah. And then angiosperms came in and just kind of said, all right, we're going to take all the good places. Mm -hmm. Yes. And conifers and, and all the gymnosperms were kind of relegated uh -huh. exactly. to the environments that angiosperms just aren't doing quite as well. In. Yeah. that it, It's just a little bit more difficult to survive, especially as a tree. Um, so if you think about like bogs. These are the types of places that like you have herbaceous angiosperms that are, that are basically just like, I'll throw a lot of babies at this problem. And then mm -hmm. gymnosperm trees, because like they are able to just, and you, you see, you tend to see, you know, places that don't have quite as high quality soil. That's when you start getting a higher uh, proportion of gymnosperms in a forest. Like if there's, if there's, if there's an inch there's just like there's there's just a little bit of space that angiosperms are like oh it's just a it's a little bit too difficult to live here. Gymnosperms are like don't worry I got it like this is mine now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're like the opposite of a weed. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's, it's in a tough situation. If if it's hard for other plants, you can guarantee that there will be giant trees. Yes, yes. That are conifers who have staked their claim. That's so interesting. That's really cool. That that's a really interesting dichotomy a, a difference between the two groups and it and it is very reminiscent of differences we've talked a lot about with animals on the podcast mm -hmm. where we talk about the difference between 
you know, cold-blooded, quote-unquote, versus warm-blooded lifestyles and how it seems like one of those is obviously the best one, especially if you're a warm-blooded animal thinking about it. <laughs> yep. But there's these different things you can do with those different lifestyles. And, and once again, there's environments where you see one notably more common, yep. that reptiles thrive in deserts mm-hmm. much better than mammals do. And it's it's this is a great way to show that it's not that angiosperms came along and were the better plant. Right. But for a lot of the planet, they were able to more aggressively compete. Mm-hmm. But in the areas where they couldn't more aggressively compete, conifers have been doing just fine, you know, doing right. great. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's basically the Jurassic up north. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right, Allie, before we wrap up, Tell us about some of your favorite uh, gymnosperm fossils. Okay. Before you ask me that. <clears throat> oh, sure. Will you ask <coughs> me how gymnosperms <coughs> change the world? Say that again? I'm will sorry. Gymnosperms me- change the world. Yes. Will you ask me how... Oh, I was I was going to ask that way at the oh, end, but you right. want to ask me that. Thank you. No, we can do that at the end. I'm sorry. I forgot, even though we just <coughs> talked about that. I'm Wait. sorry. Will you ask me no the problem. other one again? <laughs> I'll do it again. Here we go. Thank you. For the real this time. For the real this time. <coughs> Get all out. <coughs> We're old men now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Allie. Before we finish... All right, Allie. Before we finish talking about the ancient history of gymnosperms, tell us about some of your favorite fossils. Alrighty. I admit, I cheated a little bit on this, and you'll realize why. Uh, what I mean by that in a moment. But... <laughs> <laughs> These are mostly... Not gymnosperms. (laughs) These are all angiosperms, actually. So, one of the coolest fossils that I came across. So, so, honestly, there are so many gymnosperm fossils. There are so many of them. But one of them that I saw that I gasped when I saw it. When I saw the picture of it. It's a seedling. It's a neophyte seedling. What? Weird. <laughs> yeah. It's, so it's got little rootlets and like you can see the little cotyledons and its name is Cretonia cotyledon. Aww. Uh, it's from the Cretaceous of Brazil. And it is adorable because like, <laughs> as you know, the fossil record of neophytes, not great. Fossil record of seedlings, almost non-existent. <laughs> Yeah. So the fact that we got one of those is really exciting. It is it is really helpful because it does get us uh, a little bit of context, a little bit of insight into the actual development of these fossils, right? Like, you don't get to see a baby all the time. It's very exciting. Yeah, very cool. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I'm going to say it again. Three-dimensionally preserved cones are beautiful. Yeah. Like the Aracaria mirabilis, it's a, it, it tends to be from... I think it's from the Jurassic. Oh my goodness. Like when they, when they show those like polished and cut open. Oh my goodness. They're beautiful. Highly recommend (laughs) just looking at those. Like I could stare at that for hours, but there's also like Pinus, uh, Larix, which is a type of larch. Like there's a bunch of like mummified cones. We got mummified cones. That's so cool. I think they're from the Eocene, (laughs) right? Like, it never occurred to me that a cone could mummify, but like, I guess it makes sense. Yeah. This is a neat little story. The holotype of Psychoidea etrusca, which is a Benetitalian. Sure. Holotype means the reference specimen, the, the one that was chosen as the example of the species. Yes. This is a solicified trunk because mm. it's a Benetitalian. Of course, it's a solicified trunk. So p- petrified tree, basically. Yes. 
was discovered in an Etruscan grave where it had been included as a burial object. Whoa. Wow. What's Etruscan? Uh, it's in Italy. Okay. <laughs> or like, or like that, that, that like area. But the, I like that this, this is a nice overlap of archaeology <laughs> with mm-hmm. paleontology. But it's like. Well, because it means that some ancient person collected this plant fossil yes. mm-hmm. and loved it so much yep. <laughs> that they buried them with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I do think it's like kind of. Like, there's a lot to unpack here that some grave robbing paleobotanist is like, this is my holotype now. Um, <laughs> yeah. But true. don't don't worry. It, this was uh, first described in the 1890s. So, you know. Right. <laughs> this wasn't, Rampant nonsense. Exactly. This wasn't recent grave robbing. Right. It wasn't anybody we know. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> Who did the grave robbing. Um, speaking of robbing and Benedictalians, though. Do y'all know the story of Fossil Cycad National Monument? Oh. Please tell. Okay. So, Fossil Cycad National Monument is basically a ghost national monument. It was decommissioned. It only existed for roughly 30, 35 years, something like that. So, in the Black Hills of South Dakota, it was in Fall River County. It's near uh, Hot Springs, where the mammoth site is. But in that area, so that would be west of the Badlands. So near where um, Mount Rushmore is. Okay. That area of the country, there were, there was this beautiful locality, this really fossiliferous locality of Benedictalians, not fossil cycads. They were Benedictalians. And it was a lot of these like three-dimensionally preserved silicified trunks. And people would collect them pretty regularly, like a lot of collecting. And then 1922, his last name is Wieland. Uh, he was a paleobotanist, I believe at Yale. He bought the land and basically bargained with the federal government that was like, hey, I will give you this land where all these fossils are if you please make it a national monument. And so in 1922, it was commissioned as Fossil Cycad National Monument. But here's the thing. If you don't put anyone out there to check whether anyone is taking the fossils, they will continue to take the fossils, yes. uh, including yeah. Wheeland. Like, <laughs> like, well, everybody else is doing well, it. Exactly. It's so like, did they? I mean, these were mine at one point. <laughs> <laughs> right. He he was a paleobotanist, so like a bunch of stuff. Like he did describe a bunch of the stuff, but like one of the things made it to the World's Fair, but then is unaccounted for since then. Like, but by 1956, it was gone. There's nothing there. Uh, wow. Yeah. So it is. Uh, it, so they de- decommissioned it. It is a fascinating story. I've heard it so many times. Uh, if you ever go to the Geological Society of America uh, annual meeting, they tend to have like a National Park Service um, kind of centered uh, mm-hmm. session. And I, I feel like more often than not, at, there's at least one talk that at least mentions Fossil Cycad because <laughs> it is a cautionary tale. Right? It's, like, yeah. it is one of the most fossiliferous localities we have for this type of organism, and it's gone. Like, as far as we yeah. know, there's nothing left. 
Well, let this be a lesson to all you young nations out there. Uh, put a fence around your national monument. Mm-hmm. <laughs> keep but it keep it protected. If if you if you just say this is a national ma- monument that now and you don't have anyone check to see if anyone's <laughs> taking stuff, they will take stuff. Just this yeah. is this is the fossil site equivalent of Halloween candy. Please just take one. <laughs> just take one with the bucket yes. of candy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've yeah. all seen exactly. those porch cams. You know that doesn't work. <laughs> I had to talk a child out of doing that recently. Yes, a child in my life was like, "We well, just well, you, know, you just take all the candy." I was like, "No, you don't." And here now we got to talk about ethics. We live in a society. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Leave the fossils. Yep. So that everybody can yep. enjoy them. So my my the last thing on my list of favorite fossils um aren't fossils, they're living fossils. <laughs> Uh, I know. A whole episode about this. Yeah. Episode know. 90. But. Pause this podcast, go listen to episode yes. 90 as a disclaimer, and come back and we'll need to finish this one. But it is really interesting that gymnosperms have three different species that have been called, for better or worse, living fossils. So, mm-hmm. Ginkgo biloba, as I mentioned earlier, um, was cultivated by monasteries in central China. For more than 1500 years, like near, like probably close to 2000 years, people have been cultivating these trees. Europeans didn't see them until 1690. <laughs> so this was never one of those instances where like we knew about the fossils before we knew about the um, extant you know, remains. But it is the only one left uh, uh, of this ancient group of, of trees. So often called a living fossil. Next in time, in terms of when it was first uh, identified, is Metasequoia, the dawn redwood. So Metasequoia, the fossil genus, was first described in 1941. Two years later, living specimens were found. (laughs) Very cool. Yes. Always fun. Yes. So living trees were found also in China in 1943 so the 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 only living um member of metasequoia is metasequoia uh glyptostroboides uh because it looks similar to glyptostrobos glyptodonts yeah yes exactly we're getting a lot of mileage with armadillos in this episode i was not anticipating that (laughs) um but metasequoia are commonly cultivated around the world now they are a genus of deciduous conifers. I've seen lots of metasequoia on different like college campuses. There's one here. Um, they're all over. And then the last living fossil, more accurately, a single remaining uh, member of an ancient lineage is Wolemia. Are you familiar with Wolemia? Sounds familiar. Okay. Mm-mm, I'm not. Wolemia nobilis. So... This was a genus that was only known from fossils until 1994. Whew. In 1984, a stand of Wolemia. So this is a conifer. Ginkgo is a ginkgo. <laughs> Metasequoia is a conifer. Uh, Wolemia is a conifer. Found in Wolemi National Park. That's what it's named for. In New South Wales, Australia. So in this kind of like temperate rainforest region, uh, it looks a little bit like uh, a yew tree. It's got slightly wider needles 
and they're trying to increase the diversity of it. So there are a lot of planting programs internationally. So you can't go see the, the trees in the wild, but they are trying to cultivate them around the world to kind of improve diversity. Because they know what will happen if they let people walk up to those yes. trees. Yep. We've learned our lessons. Exactly. Um, so I have seen Wolemia. I saw it when I was at Kew. It was the last thing I saw at Kew Gardens before I had to catch a train to France. Um, and I cried. <laughs> like, it, is, it is a beautiful tree. Um, and I think, But I think it's really interesting that we don't really have those kinds of like living fossils in angiosperms, partially because they're not as old. Right. <laughs> but the fact that we do have all, first all those fun fact record breakers that I talked about before, Plus three, you know, single members of this ancient lineage, like gymnosperms, man, they are hanging on. Yeah, I, I was actually going to ask. So we talked about how they're they're super good at these hardy environments. They set all these incredible records. They've looked basically like they look for 300 million years. They just sort of nonchalantly go through mass extinction events. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is conifer the perfect life form? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. You you heard it here, <laughs> folks. Yeah. Conifers and crabs. Conifers and crabs. Yes. <laughs> oh man, we'll have to do an episode about araucarization. Yes. 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 It's just. <laughs> yes. I like how similar the the word is to carcinization too. Like, yep. man. Yeah. Oh yeah, perfect. Like they are the perfect light for I. Oh, I so definitely. That's bring your Christmas tree in. Top it with a crab. Yes. Yep. That's. Peak life. <laughs> Peak, yeah. You've done it. Uh, episode 117 for crabs. <laughs> Allie, one of the themes that has become a theme of the plant episodes when you come on here, especially when we talk about groups of plants or things that plants do, is that plants, like rocks, are not just the background of things. They are the foundation mm -hmm. of environments, of ecosystems. So I'm going to ask you a, a, a question that... We, it has become a tradition now on these episodes. How did gymnosperms change the world? So the answer to this is misleadingly simple. Okay. It seems like a really small thing. But when you take a second to realize what that it, indeed has meant for the world, it's a big deal. Is it? It's pine scenting. Is that... <laughs> right? right. New cars would yes. never have we been would, the yeah, same. No, exactly. That. They, they wouldn't have taken off. People wouldn't have bought <laughs> horse-drawn carriages to this day. We'd still be walking. I love this. So, gymnosperms are the reason that plants could leave the tropics. Oh. oh. This is why we have upland plants. Huh? We didn't really have those. Not not in any sort of volume. That they that they were the first ones that could make it into tough areas. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, and even just distant from warm and wet. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because if you think about, you know, up until that point, up until that point, right? When we're in the earlier parts of the, the Paleozoic, plants are restricted to water. Mm. And it is the, the evolution of the seed that lets you do that. But it's not just the evolution of the seed. It is the evolution of the seed and this, like, great ability to move water and this truly slow metabolism that lets them just kind of coast through badness. Gymnosperms are the reason why we have upland plants, why we have plants outside of the tropics, why we have plants away from water. Like... 
That's a big deal. Uh, and <laughs> Extremely. And that's fascinating because that means they're not just the reason we have plants in places that aren't warm and wet. It's the reason we have basically anything. Exactly. Because if you think about how many ecosystems and environments, not just in our modern world, but for the last 300 million years, have existed and thrived in cooler, drier, farther from sea level Mm -hmm. environments, that's a lot of them. Yes. That is, there are entire unique environments, biomes, that are defined by that. Yeah. Well, like whole, whole continent interiors mm-hmm. yeah. would have been tough. Exactly. The whole polar regions. Yes. Yes. If you think about that, grasslands, there would be basically mm-hmm. nothing in the center of con- uh, continents without conifers, without gymnosperms, because yeah. they are what got you know, I, us. I think I'm a plant, yo. Uh, got the plants <laughs> away from the tropics. And that is what allowed plants like angiosperms to spread and make the new biomes that we see today. And gymnosperms did originate a new biome, and that was upland forests. We didn't have anything yeah. like that un- until we had gymnosperms. So yeah, I, I want to make it really clear that like gymnosperms are by no means a failure. Like They are probably the toughest plants. Uh, and they have been sticking it out for a long time. Like they weren't, you know, the trailblazers in terms of like the first plants to get on the scene. They definitely weren't that. But they were like, okay, you know, thank you for getting this, this getting us this far. I will take us to the extreme because like angiosperms would not have been able to do it. <laughs> like yeah. they yeah. they aren't as hardy. But it, it sounds kind of like gymnosperms weren't the first plants to invade the land, but they were the first ones to take over the world. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Like that's that that also to me in my brain really puts into perspective the pre gymnosperm Earth. Yeah. Of like you have these vast areas that I'm sure stuff was still happening there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it would have looked like because I don't I don't know, but you weren't having lush green. Yeah. You had these areas near water where things were green and full of life and then areas that weren't that. Yes. Until yeah. gymnosperms invaded them. Yes. That's cool. I also like that the way that you've described this, Allie, is if our listeners go back and listen to us talk about this same concept in the angiosperms episode, 57, mm-hmm. and the grasses episode, 38... The way those two groups, which are not two groups, that grasses are angiosperms, but yeah, the way that we describe those changing the world wasn't possible Mm -hmm. if not for gymnosperms doing their part first. Yes. This has given me an immense amount of appreciation for gymnosperms. First, knowing what they are, which (laughs) has been very handy. But this is a very cool group of plants. I'm very happy that we did this episode. (laughs) I've learned a whole bunch. Well, and the other thing too, right? So if we like kind of bring it back. At the beginning, we were joking like, yes, bring them into your house. It's like, no, I feel like that's the least we could do. Like show them a little bit of respect. Dress them up in some tinsel. Like, yes. (laughs) Here's a question I've been wondering that both of you would be more poised to know the answer to than myself. Uh, given the spirit that this is our Christmas episode, we're talking about conifers and stuff. Uh, what are the most common conifers that are used as Christmas trees? Alrighty. Okay. Let... Oh boy, Allie has answers. Okay. <laughs> it, it does depend on where you are. Like Douglas fir is a common one, but you'll have firs, 
you tend not to have pine. Oh, I'm so excited to explain this. Okay, this is my yes. like this is my like <laughs> winter trivia. Oh, this is great. Okay, so you tend to not have pines as Christmas trees. The needles just aren't good for it. They tend to drop off like. No good for decorating on the inside of the house. You tend to either have firs or spruces. Now, which you choose is a matter of preference, but I will teach you, <laughs> the listener at home, and also my... I was going to say my friends in the studio. You're in a studio. I'm, <laughs> That's us. Yeah. Uh, my friends in the studio. You're in this Yoda-filled studio. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I will teach you the way to differentiate between um, firs and spruces because a lot of people struggle with that. Like they'll know a pine tree when they see it. And then Mm -hmm. there are firs and spruces (laughs) and I will teach you how to differentiate (laughs) them. So fir trees, firs have flat, friendly, fragrant needles. So they tend to be, if you were to you know grab one your finger, it's flat. You can't really roll it. It's flat. They're friendly. If you were to shake hands with a fir tree, it wouldn't hurt. They're really flexible yes. kinds of needles. I think fragrant is a is whoever taught me the mnemonic just liked the smell of a fir better mm. than a, <laughs> the smell of a of a spruce. But apparently they smell better. Whereas spruces are just rude little trees. (laughs) (laughs) They are short and sharp and square. So if you were to grab a single needle from a spruce and roll it between your fingers, you would kind of feel that it's got, it's not round. So they have this corners. Exactly. It's got the square cross section. They are short and sharp. Like if you grab one of those, you will regret it. Uh, And they, they tend to also be, very stinky. <laughs> but yeah, so generally speaking, it tends to be between um, firs and spruce. It's a matter of preference. My family is a Douglas fir family, which Douglas fir has one of my favorite scientific names, Sudasugo menziesii. Great. All right. <laughs> so my vote, my vote has always been Douglas fir. <laughs> so listeners, if any of you out there have a favorite conifer yes. uh, for your Christmas trees... Uh, feel free to let us know. Of course, uh, we all famously know uh, Mariah Carey's <laughs> conifer preference. Yes, we do. As she has expressed many times. <laughs> all I want for Christmas. I know. I don't know if a you would be very good. Now that I think about it. Allie, thank you so much for joining us to talk to, with us about gymnosperms and conifers. This has been a fantastic discussion. Before we officially wrap up, for the episode, we have one last thing to do, and that is a patron question. Woo! As many of our listeners know, and as Allie knows, one of the benefits that you can receive by becoming a patron on our Patreon at a certain level is the ability to submit questions for us to answer right here on the podcast. Every now and then, we get a question that is plant-related, and we save those for the Allie episodes. <laughs> Allie, this episode's question comes from Kylie, who asks... What is the mechanism that causes growth rings on rigid materials like trees, bones, and shells? I know that slower growth produces denser materials, hence the rings, but why does growth rate affect density that way? And is the mechanism even the same between trees and, say, clams? All right, three parts. I will answer them each. (laughs) Part one, tree rings? (laughs) The reason that we will get (laughs) rings in things like trees is 
because we are looking at differing rates of growth. When you, when you think about a tree ring, you're seeing actually two parts. So each ring has two parts. So it tends to represent a year. The light colored layer is spring and early summer is thicker because that's when the tree is actually growing. The dark colored band is from late summer into fall. And that is typically thinner because that is when the tree is basically stopping to grow, uh, stopping growing. So there's the two parts, the high, you know, increasing growth, increasing growth. And they're the two different colors. It's important to keep in mind that only applies in temperate regions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like trees in the tropics do not have rings because they don't stop growing. Yep, it's the same rate all the time. Exactly. That's the only reason there are rings is because it stops at some point. So that is why. Rings, because they don't grow in the winter. Uh, yes. Or they grow at least much less in the winter. Winter. So that's part one. Part two. Why do trees that grow more slowly have denser wood. That is, again, we're going to go back to the same phrase that I keep repeating, live fast, die young. (laughs) Plants with less dense wood, lighter, softer wood, they are prioritizing quantity over quality. So this is not going there. You're not putting as much effort into making good wood. You're making effort into making a lot of wood. Whereas slow dense wood is prioritizing quality over quantity you're not trying to make a whole lot you're just trying to make a rock basically uh so that that's the reason basically you know i think like honestly when i was trying to figure out how to explain this it made me think of crochet uh like if you're if you're knitting something if you're constructing something and you want to do a good job you're going to make sure it doesn't have holes in it But if you want to just do something really fast, like if you do sort of like a mesh shirt, that's going to be so quick. Uh, It's going to take less material. You'll get so much more, like so much faster. That's kind of what the trees are doing. The the thing that popped in my head is uh, marking someone's growth on the wall. And like if you were growing at different rates, when you're growing quickly, if you're marking a mark every Mm -hmm. day, you're going to have the marks farther apart. Exactly. But then if you start growing slower, you're going to have the marks closer together. Yeah. And you'd have that pattern if you were cycling your growth rate. Exactly. Exactly. And then the last part, is the mechanism the same for tree rings as it is for, say, clams? The answer is yes. The yep. reason that you are seeing these lines, these these rings, is because at some point, the organism is not growing at the same rate. So with... You know, plants, they're growing during the season where there's sun and they can photosynthesize uh, with, you know, clams. They're going to be growing when it's a, when it's warmer. It's a lot easier to get food. So, yeah, nah, trees are basically clams. <laughs> well, and it's the same mechanism we see in growth rings in like reptiles. Yep. Mm-hmm. Alligator bones, you see this dinosaur bones, you see these uh, we call them lines of arrested growth. Yes. Where you have a period of growth and then this line that marks the slowing or stopping of that growth and then a period of growth again. Because much like trees, they have active and inactive times Mm -hmm. where like a lot of reptiles just don't eat for three or four months out of the year. Right. They just don't not growing. So they're yeah, their body's (laughs) not doing much. Yep. So good question, Kylie. We've mentioned that a bunch of times Mm -hmm. here on the podcast, so it's nice to get the chance to explain it. 
Thank you, Kylie, for that question. Thank you to all of our patrons. Thank you to all of our requesters who requested this episode. As always, if you have other things you want us to talk about, send us a request through any of the means you can find down in the episode description. If you have more requests for plant topics, we will have Allie back again in 10 more episodes for episode 165. So uh, listeners, start sending in your thoughts about what we want to do for that. Yes. And of course, thank you, Allie, for joining us for this episode. I love talking at you about plants. (laughs) (laughs) This has been the last episode of 2022. The next episode will start off the new year. There is, of course, one other thing coming out at the very end of the year, and that's our end of the year Q&A. By the time this comes out, the submission form is done, so no more questions are able to be submitted. But check out the end of the year Q&A. We will be talking for an untold number of hours, answering the questions from all of the people who have submitted those for this year. Consider it a late Christmas present. (laughs) It's a New Year's present. (laughs) We will be back next year with more episodes, more special stuff, more visits from Allie, more plants, more everything. We release episodes every fortnight. We hope everybody has a happy holiday season. We hope everybody has a happy new year. Allie, we hope you have a happy new year. Me too. Thanks. And that's all I got. Merry Christmas, everyone. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.